0: Blood is red. Voodoo is blue. Sugar is sweet. Revenge is sweeter. Meet Sugar Hill. Not a place, but a brand new face. The foxiest, sexiest, deadliest chicken town. The mob took Sugar's man away, and now. She's gonna make them pay. I want them dead! With a voodoo priestess called Mama Matres and Baron Samney too, and an army of undead behind her. There's nothing that Sugar can't do. The mob has never seen anything like Sugar Hill and her zombie hitmen. Sugar Hill. From American International, rated PG, parental guidance suggested.
1: Dun-da-da-da-dun. Dun-da-da-da-dun. Dun, we should have started going... <laughs> dun da 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 dun. Oh, wow. So, we're in the... Uh, we're getting into the summer months.
2: Just about to enter.
1: The summer! Extravaganza. Welcome to Saturday Night Movie Sleepovers. I am Jay Blake, and this is... Dion Baia, and you are listening to Saturday Night Movie <laughs> Sleepovers! Um... And we're here we just did john wick Wick. john wick because <laughs> i'm swedish we just did john wick last week and i've never t- tried to do a swedish accent or norwegian it's like you know a troll hunter uh we did the john Wick last week and now we're
2: back today and we're going and we're doing an oldie from uh way, way back way back in 1976, the good, America's Bicentennial. Good year. I set a book that year, 1976. Special we're, quarters and everything that year. Everything. I, yeah. I have, you
1: have all kinds of stuff. Rocky. We had Rocky. <laughs> Rocky. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Blowout. <laughs> the only two movies we know in that universe. But anyway, we're not doing either one of those. We're a little, we're a little whacked out because we've had some coffee. So we're a little, we, we drank a lot. It's late on a Saturday. For some reason, I said, let's brew, brew the coffee. And we had some of my dad's like devil juice coffee. It's It's quarter
2: to three, and there's no one left in the place (laughs) except except you and
1: me. me. So set them up, (laughs) Blake. I got a little story that I think you should know. It's called Assault on Precinct Thirteen from 1976. (laughs) 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 Sorry, well a little whacked. Yeah,
2: Uh, John John Carpenter. It's been a while since we did a Carpenter movie.
1: Yeah, we did John Carpenter Funny Enough at Halloween.
2: We came out of the gate. Didn't we? Hard. Hard. And early hard. four and a half years ago mm-hmm. with John Carpenter movies. Every month we were
1: doing a John Carpenter John, movie. <laughs> throwing
2: yeah. them out there. But now we have to dull them out slowly.
1: Yeah, we have to, you know, it's like, a, it's like a, uh, an attic getting his fixed. We got to <laughs> break them out and, uh, and, and- We're almost out. Yeah, we can't. We got to conserve what we have. <laughs> we're losing our battery power. So um, well now we're hitting 1976, John Carpenter's Assault on Precinct 13. How about you? What's your history? Uh, answer me now! Don't wait for the translation. Answer <laughs> <asking> me <laughs> now.
2: Uh, I don't. I don't know. I mean, it's definitely a John Carpenter movie that I saw later than a lot of the other ones. Might not have been even been until college. I know mm. that this one was a big f- one for you. Yeah, because of a, a special viewing. This scared
1: the poopies out of me. This was just one of those. It's one of those movies on the list, man, of movies you shouldn't show a child. Uh, I remember growing up, and uh, we had moved to the suburbs, and it was, I guess, it was back when um, I heard someone talking about this recently. Where, like, if you if you were in a suburban or urban area, there was the public schools, and then on the in the summer, they would try to have like some sort of like officially sanctioned city or town day camp at there. Okay. And it was one of those things where, you know, if the kids in the neighborhood can just show up there during the day. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it wasn't like they would take attendance, but they're like, there's enough here. And they'd have like, I guess they'd employ counselors to just be there and do something with the kids.
2: Mm-hmm. So uh, the sh- the school- And w- watching Assaulted Precinct 13. <laughs> no, no, school. no.
1: <laughs> no. But what happened was it was summertime, so- I was doing this by day. I was going near me. There was a, the Helen Street School. I would go there, and they were having this program. So that's how I met a lot of the kids in the neighborhood. And I guess one of these nights at home, I watched Assault on Precinct 13. It was on TV during the summer. Because I remember the next day coming back and being on the stoop of the school, and I was like, hey, did you watch Assault on Precinct 13? We didn't even know how to probably say the whole, did you watch the Precinct 13? <laughs> like, yeah. And all of us had watched it. So this is also probably an example of, like, uh, you know, real, like, uh, minimal cable you know, we're, we didn't have a lot to choose from. Yeah. And uh, like three or four of the kids watched it. And it so horrified me because you don't see where it's going within the movie. So if you start it from the beginning, and I, can't, I don't think I saw it on a paid channel. And I don't think it was a video. I think it was just on TV. I started watching it. And when you get to the part with the ice cream truck, uh-huh. you don't see that going that way. Especially for like a little seven or eight-year-old Dion. So when, when uh, what's his face? Uh, double, John Doubleday? Yeah. Uh when he ends up um you know just killing Frank Doubleday. Sorry. Frank Doubleday. Sorry, Frank. Sorry, Frank. He he died last year, actually. Yeah, actually. I well, was actually, gonna actually, say it's, it's a year, right? It's I actually was gonna say May he actually la- died very recently. Yeah, May of two thousand seven uh, eighteen. Um so when he kills the, the 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 Kim Richards, the ice the ice cream girl, horrified me because you don't see that coming. Yeah. And then it turning into almost a horror movie when they get stuck at, you know, when they get to the uh, precinct and that kind of a thing scared the crap precinct out of me. Nine. So because of that now, I, uh, I have a really big scare because of that in... Um, Maxim overdrive, I hate ice cream trucks. So anytime I hear <laughs> yeah. the ice cream man this the this, this the singing the, the, the music playing, I freak out because I either think of den dun dan, or I think of um tra tra, tra, tra <laughs> assault, um, um,
2: yeah. overdrive. I mean, for you listeners who have never experienced Dion will run and wedge himself behind the couch yeah. up against the wall
1: and just just, <laughs> just 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 have a not not so much like a grandma seizure, but I will start talking to myself and just I'm just until I have to be sick, or is it so hide under the bed hide under the bed. I'm just so scared I'll urinate myself i you know i, I complete complete de- um what do you call that incontinence and it's just scary and it's, it's these movies here because you don't see that coming uh it's it it seems like it's going one way it goes another way uh, I was the age of the child in it so it's horrifying mm-hmm. to see violence and brutality on that level and then it, it becomes kind of a night of living dead situation you know where you have a faceless and mindless and i remember even to the point on the original viewing seeing when uh, tony burton uh, the african american gentleman is going i remember his demise where like you're cheering for him and he comes out of the sewer and he gets into the car you know and then you're watching and then you know this is the era of really shitty copies so I remember like not being able to tell really what's in the car it was hard to see him because he's really really yeah. dark skin and it's not really lit well and I'm trying to see and then all of a sudden plus somebody
2: cropped for the television and back yeah then. And,
1: and then you're watching a crappy print so when I could I probably couldn't even tell what really happened when somebody came up behind him and I was like oh did he die you know because then it cuts <laughs> to like the window like what happened know? that is the second memory and the third memory from the f- first viewing was how horrified I was when you had the two cops Pull up and they're talking, and you hear like the drip and drip, 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 yeah. and the nightmare of like them looking up. I still to this day even have like a. I remember the guy up in the cherry picker being looking different. That so horrified me, him being dead up there, yeah, like that yeah. being so unsettling. Because I knew what all those implications meant. Sure. You know, back in the day of landlines and stuff like that. So those are the three takeaways I had from my first yeah. viewing. So
2: Sultan Precinct 13. Yeah, good talking Check you guys. it out. Yeah. All right.
1: <laughs> Check us out next week. Um and it's weird because then f- for years I kind of like stayed away from the movie. I was almost like scared of it. You know what I mean? You know and then and then it wasn't until years later I got it maybe watched it with you then I rewatched it in, in in prior years and the for me the soundtrack is so um uh it Trans- Transcends the, the movie like that that as a as a side note has become the, the theme music of my dog. Every time I'm in the car with my dog, he's prowling, scoping, he's da 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 with his little sniper rifle coming out, and like he's gonna start picking people off.
2: I just recently was online, and uh, I don't remember what product it was, but you know, you're watching videos online, and commercials will pop up automatically, yeah. ads, and there was some makeup advertisement. Oh, I heard it, yeah. And And they used, uh, like, a, somebody covered this. Did they sample it or was it a cover? I think it's a cover. Because I, I don't even think it's the, the new Carpenter version from the, his new anthology where they kind of... Because he did all these songs. He did, like, a, all his major themes live in concert, and then they recorded them all in the studio and released an anthology album uh, with his live band. I don't even think it's that. I think somebody covered it. Oh, wow. And I was like, at first I was like like, what the? I know, you couldn't. You can't place it? It's yeah, like, it's I was like, like, I knew it was John Carpenter, but like so f- so out of the element. I was like, is this Escape from New York? What is this? And I was like, oh, shit, this is Assault Precinct 13.
1: Which is so like in the weeds. <laughs> but I mean, that's probably why they're using it, because people aren't going to know. I- I'm sure 90% of the audience they're going for isn't going to realize that. Yeah, it's, it just is... Or 90% of the audience even watching the commercial isn't going to put two and two together exactly you know only the you know the horror nerds or the the carpenter heads are are gonna you know really you know stand out and to to me this is one of my favorite scores of his and this is probably my probably my top three my favorite carpenter movies are the thing because i saw it younger at a younger age and i saw this this movie and then maybe um i don't even know what the third one would be at the moment but you know uh those assaults always been high on my list because it's weird now when I watched it so far removed. And, you know, it's, it's like, oh, it's just a, like a B genre picture. You know, it's just, <laughs> yeah, like, it's just yeah. like this is the fear that was coming out. It's almost like a exploitation picture of the era, you know, with like, oh, you know, Napoleon Wilson, these guys with these names or, you know. Uh, and then another movie that's kind of related to this is, you know, we've talked about warriors and we've done a podcast on the warriors, but Death Wish 3 was also something I saw at a very young age, probably when it came out and that horrified me as well because the gang in that is so crazy and the head of the gang is the guy who's in Willow. That we made the correlation. He's the redheaded guy that I said was the brother on the episode of Happy Days.
2: Okay, and his yeah,
1: father yeah. is the gentleman from Season of the Witch, and also is Herlihy, Dan he is his, and I forget his. Maybe's Gavin. I forget the son's name. But he's the bad guy in Hollow uh, in Death Wish Three, and that's how I know him. And he's got like a, a red cross on his head, and that's another thing where these this this gang is. Just, you know, blatantly out murdering people. And that's not a movie you should see at a very young age where, like, they're slitting old people's throats. Yeah. Um, uh, with Diana Troy from Star Trek, they rip her blouse off and you see her naked in the parking garage before uh, Charlie Bronson comes, Paul Kersey, and fuck some shit up. So it's like, that's another movie where the Martin Balsam's in that, where it's like the gang is a bunch of, probably because of a the Warriors and Assault on Precinct 13, that the gang is these mindless people who are just causing havoc in this New York, I think it is, neighborhood. You know? Sure. Um, so you coming at this as a carpenter uh, aficionado and, and a road a Scholar and, and the John Carpenter, <laughs> um, what do you think about this? Well,
2: I mean, it's... Uh It's classic. I mean, it's classic Carpenter.
1: Yeah, it's his first. It's kind of his first after Dark Star, right? This is his first kind of. Yeah, I
2: mean, in in some in some sense, it is kind of his first feature, even though technically Dark Star is his first feature. Dark Star was is this wacky space comedy that he made with Dan O'Bannon in film school, and then found. Somebody to distribute it if they could get it up to feature length. So then they shot a whole bunch of new stuff. Yeah, but that was made over like years or something like that. You know, they would shoot some, then they'd raise money, and then they'd shoot more, and um, and they did most of it at USC. So even though it's technically his first feature, it's not really like his first professional film. Dark Star. Yeah. Yeah. Assault and Precinct Thirteen is, like, his first foray into, like, actually professionally directing a movie.
1: Well, he, um, well, I guess the success that that Dark Star kind of gets, this is when he's approached by, um, what's his face? Um, uh, J.S. Kaplan with some money, and they're like, you know, we want to have you make it, like, kind of like a a genre or B-movie, 100th grand, and whatever you want to do, just keep it under the budget. Well, it's
2: my understanding that he went to... He knew J.S. Kaplan from USC. And Kaplan was friends with Joseph Kaufman. I think maybe they were both from Philadelphia or something like that. But they knew each other from, you know, before... From outside film school. And they both wanted to get into, like, film producing. And I've heard mixed stories, like, mixed tellings of the story where... They knew Carpenter, like I said, Kaplan knew Carpenter and they were talking to Carpenter. Carpenter had Carpenter had written a script called Eyes. Which yeah. w- which then later which then got bought by John Peters and Barbara Streisand. Um and turned into the and eyes then, of and then eventually became with Faye Dunaway, I think, yeah. the eyes of Laura Mars. Tommy
1: Lee Jones and even <coughs> uh, what's his face? Chucky. Um Durif. Yeah, he's the he's the heavy in that too.
2: But uh I think based on him selling eyes, like Kaplan and Kaufman's parents were like this guy's going places. I mean he just sold a script to Barbara Streisand. Yeah. Like let's hitch our wagon onto this guy's <laughs> horse and um so they devised a plan where they would make two f- films with Carpenter. Two hundred thousand dollar films, like Each one $100,000, not $200,000. Yeah. And so uh, he had sold Eyes. So that was off the table. So he wrote Assault on Precinct 13. Now, he had also at that point written Escape from New York. Yeah. Escape from New York doesn't get made until the early 80s, but he wrote that really kind of early on. And uh, we talk about that in our Escape from New York episode. Yeah. and um, But I think he had written that in like 74, Escape from New York. So now we're talking like 75, 76. Um, obviously, for $100,000, they are probably like a futuristic New York. <laughs>
1: it's hard. <Yeah. laughs> That's in probably York, not going to work for this budget. Yeah. And also, he was also maybe thinking of even... Uh, I've heard conjecture where if he had more money he could have even tried to make this a western but you can't make a period piece. It's hard to make a yeah. a, a, a period genre piece and do it any justice if you're only going to have $100,000 which at the time is a lot of money but
2: yeah. you know, but still, still. For, to make a movie yeah. and then to make a period piece. Yeah. So he writes this script and he's like okay let's make this for the first movie and then he and Kaplan and Kaufman sit down and they budget it out how much is this going actually going to co- cost for us to make and they realize that it's Going to cost more than $100,000. But I guess they like the script. Kaufman and Kaplan like the script, and they decide, well, let's just take the budgets for the two movies.
1: Oh, and turn it into. And, and then-
2: just use those budgets to make this movie. So there's, uh, uh, you know, there's the legend of Osaltheart Precinct 13 is that it, this was made for $100,000. But it was actually made for like just over $200,000 because they pooled the two budgets. From uh, what they were going to use for the for for whatever the, the second movie was going to be, and they just used both those budgets to make Assault and Precinct 13.
1: Because I guess the original idea would have been for them to for him to write and direct also the Eyes movie, but he wrote that and was able to sell that. Yeah, and then maybe that's where the, that's what I
2: mean is that there's <clears throat> a little bit of difference in story. <clears throat> One story is he sold the script, and then that's what impressed them enough to want to make a movie with him. Yeah. And then the other story is that they were going to make that movie together and then he sold that script. He was like, screw it. Which is, a, which is you know, subtle difference, but it is two different kind of points of view of two different histories for that movie. The original, uh, he went through a few different titles. The original title, I think, was the Anderson Alamo. Yeah. Well, because
1: it takes place, I noticed in this uh, viewing, in the Anderson ghetto area yeah. of town.
2: And then I think... After it was made, they were trying to sell it under the name The Siege. Yeah. And,
1: and, then, and then it was the distributor, right, that came at him and And then Erwin Yell
2: Blondes, who also uh, distributed Halloween. Yeah. That's probably what he's most famous for in the world of John Carpenter. He also, he before Halloween, distributed Assault on Precinct 13, and he was the one that came up with the name Assault on Precinct 13. Because if you watch the movie, it's actually assault, it's actually Precinct 9- District Thirteen. Yeah, so it's not even an accurate title. Yeah, but there is something to the title. <laughs> no, I think
1: it's yeah, it's very. I the, the number thirteen. I love the number thirteen. It's very, you know, it's catchy enough. I mean, it's it's different enough so that it's, you know, it has a it makes you inquisitive about it. As if you know, I I personally like it better than the Anderson Alamo. Yeah, but yeah. that does lend itself more to it being basis in a Western kind of. I mean, there's a lot of references, aren't there, to the Alamo and I th- I thought there was. I yeah, mean, there's yeah. a couple, there's at least a you couple. Know.
2: But, uh, you know, as we were saying, technically Dark Star is his first feature, but in a sense, this is his first feature. And like a lot of great auteurs, meaning directors that kind of have artistic ownership over the films and you can, you know, see common threads throughout their movies... Assault of Precinct 13 is a really early example of a lot of things that Carpenter is going to become known for. Other great examples I I point to are like Bird with Crystal Plumage is Dario Argento's first movie. And yet so fucking Argento. Yeah. You know, like he had the whole Argento thing kind of figured out already. Uh, Evil Dead, another perfect example. Like the first Evil Dead movie, Sam Raimi's first feature film, arguably his first feature film. There might have been, like, a Super 8 feature comedy that they made that never went anywhere. You know, part of their Super 8 film uh, collective that they had when they were in high school and stuff. But really, Evil Dead's his first, like, full-blown-out feature. And it's so Sam Raimi. Yeah. Like, everything that we know Sam Raimi for. Uh, Shivers, perfect example for David Cronenberg. <laughs> I saw the Brace 13, though we come to know Carpenter as a horror director, even though a lot of his greatest movies are not horror movies. All of them you could a lot of those you a lot of them you could argue have horror elements to them, but things like Escape from uh, New York, Big Trouble Little China, Starman, um, a personal favorite of Dion's in mind, uh, Memoirs of an Invisible Man. Memoirs of an Invisible Man, yeah, of course. You know, these are not uh Although
1: that would maybe lend itself a little to horror because but you I mean, look at the association of the Invisible Man. But it's not really a horror
2: movie at no, all. But it's less
1: a horror movie than this is. No, but, you know, it was funny because when I worked at the video store, they had that categorized in the comedy section only because Chevy Chase was in it. Yeah. So that was almost like a stigma. I was like, it's not a comedy because Chevy Chase is in it, you know. But I, you always look at the the categorization. Maybe it's, it is a little um, of a stereotype, but The Invisible Man always kind of falls in the horror Umbrella, but in memoirs is more of kind of like a. I
2: mean, it's really more of a science. I mean, even like if a we thriller, go, sci-fi. even if we could go back to the. The original concept yeah, of H.G. Wells' yeah. The story, yeah, it's more of a... And then the universal movie of Claude Rains, yeah. kind of more of a science fiction
1: Yeah, kind of a thriller. You know, or, but I guess at that time, the, the umbrella was, you know... monster, uh, Monster, and he's a monster because, you know, of what Claude Rains was doing and all that. So anyway, but yeah, we you, you and I have a big affinity for the memoirs of An Invisible Man, and uh, and I like a lot of his B-sides. And this was one that, you know, it's I, I was... Uh, exposed very early on to, to to the thing, and I was exposed very early on to Big Trouble, Little China, Escape from New York, and this this that's probably my third one is Escape from New York. Yeah, you know,
2: yeah. So, you know, even though he later becomes considered a horror film director, my point is that Assault at Precinct Thirteen is for a filmmaker right out of the gate is kind of a perfect template for a John Carpenter movie. Sure, in yeah. a lot of ways,
1: and it, and it's certainly starting to show his style like you're saying the auteur, the auteur of yeah. it where it's certain he's shooting it on, you know, 235, he's panavision. What like he's doing
2: for the first time yeah.
1: in this movie. Uh so it's you have these beautiful cropped shots and that's what he has working for him. Somebody I read somewhere that like they say John Carpenter's the greatest like B at, director ever and it's like I think his style is really helps Transcend these movies because this could be a script that you could give to somebody else, and it could just be a forgettable TV movie. Say, you know, Absolutely. or it could be a, an episode of a show like a Kojak or some sort of Copper Sutton show. And I'm sure there are other examples if we know our 70s television programming where you had this kind of thing happen. Well, I think you know,
2: th- you know that's <clears throat> one of his greatest strengths, especially in his as he be- as he began his career. You know, I think. If you look at the other filmmakers of his generation, I mean, we're talking about the Scorseses and, you know, he's part of this film school generation, the new Hollywood. We don't often think of John Carpenter in that, but he was. He came out of USC, which I believe is the same school that Lucas went to. Yeah, I think Lucas just graduated just before Carpenter got there or, you know, there might have been a little bit of crossover. But if you look at... This, then, the, like the, the neo Hollywood, the new Hollywood of the 70s, when the, the studio system stopped and it was starting to be taken over by, uh, you know, more businessmen, and they started to hire young filmmakers to make films for young people.
1: It was almost like you went corporate.
2: Yeah. You know. And it was also, there was, because of the baby boom. There was an abundance of young people,
1: yeah, looking to do something
2: <laughs> and and uh, also looking to watch things. Yeah. you know that became a very that became maybe for the first time, like those teenagers and early t- people in their early twenties became like the key demographic for things.
1: It's it's <clears throat> it's funny that um you think about that with the the when when the studio system uh, ended up dying in the late '60s and you had the corpor- corporatization of it or you have entrepreneurs or whoever you want to call it coming in with crap loads of money like just you know wheelbarrows full of money that are like oh I can make money off this and that's where you hear the alternative argument that they kind of ruined you know because it became about money and numbers as opposed to keeping the style the art you know that you you are start getting the independent boom because you have people who are willing to take chances on risky endeavors or whatever you know you don't know if it's going to be a sure shot and this leads us to the whole late 60s 70s you know uh Eras of film with the different genres yeah. you get like that, and then in the seventies, it, it seems like even the, we can we can cover whatever movie we want, but it, we always kind of go back to these same you know, um, themes you and I always talk about where it's like, you know, this how, what's going on in the 70s and all that kind of thing. Well, it's important. You know, yeah, a, I, I mean, know. A I always feel like we're beating <laughs> this, the, you know, if someone was slagging us off because they say we mentioned that we went to college every episode, or I don't think we do that. We just give a frame of reference, but I would think people would slag us off more for us beating the drum about the same themes yeah. we talk about, but it, you're right. <clears throat> it's... it's we try to remind of the era, 76, where well, you're coming I mean, out of... Well,
2: because those movies can only be made in an era where those things are happening. Yeah. I mean, I mean art is a reflection of the time. Yeah. Uh, and I guess where I'm going with this is Carpenter's great strength is, I think, more than an artist. There are some filmmakers that are artists. Uh, to me, Carpenter's always been, I always consider him more of a craftsman. He's kind of in a lot of ways, a filmmaker out of time. Yeah. He's less... He doesn't really become a a quote-unquote, like, political filmmaker until something like They Live, whereas, like, Romero's doing that
1: fresh out of the the
2: gate. With Night of Living Dead. And even though, you know, technically Carpenter's peers are people like Coppola and Scorsese and George Lucas and Steven Spielberg, I mean, I think because he's associated with the horror genre, people think of... Probably his peers more being people like Romero and Wes Craven Toby and Toby Hooper yeah. and I think Carpenter's or De Palma. greatness is that is the polish that he's able because he's a, like such a craftsman. Like even if you look at something like Mean Streets, yeah, it's great, but it's rough. It's gritty. Arru- it's gritty yeah, and it's a little rough around the edges, not in a bad way. Yeah, it, you know, if it, in some would argue. That's one of its strengths. You know, it does have like a very different feel. Whereas Carpenter's going, he's trapped in like, you know, Howard Hawks and, and John Ford and Hitchcock are his heroes. And so he wants to make movies of that caliber. So things like Assaulted Precinct 13 and then Halloween have a certain production value, no matter what their budgets might be, Yeah, that a lot of others... Filmmakers that are considered his peers, they don't get that kind of polish until much later in their career. Yeah, like, maybe when the budgets go up or after they have a couple. Because I mean, Romero, even as great as like Romero's movies are, and you know, we we've you know we've praised Romero on many occasions. And we, we did we, a whole episode when he passed away. We talked about his. And we've done Dawn of the Dead, and but as great as like Night of the Living Dead is, and. Martin and Martin and the Crazies and Dawn of the Dead are none of them are as polished as Assaulted Precinct Thirteen is. Yeah, you might not get that till
1: maybe with him to like a
2: creep show or something. where it's, Yeah, where he know, starts to dip his toe into like more yeah. of a studio system. I mean, Night Riders also great movies, love them, but yeah, they don't have as professional of a look as Carpenter's movies do, and, and I if, think that's what kind of elevates Carpenter's early work.
1: Up a little bit, and it seems like he's just kind of like uh, dressing up. Oh, he's trying to do like a western almost, and it's it's like he likes the vistas that you get from like you said, a Howard Hawks, a, a John Ford, those kind of beautiful widescreen, you know, um, Monument Valley kind of shots. So I think it's a big thing. In his staging, in his in his mise en scène, in the scenes of using the frame in such a way, you know, him shooting on um, not cinemaScope but on Panavision's the big two three five yeah. widescreens that help him, you know, you can you you know you forget at certain parts it's a low budget movie because. He's shooting it in such a way he's not shooting it on, like, you know, uh, TV frame or, you know, 4-3. He's shooting with the idea this is going to be in the cinema and this is going to look great yeah. on widescreen as opposed to with the idea of it going to TV and, you know, having it scrunched or cut the sides cut off.
2: He's a very interesting businessman to think that by the time he makes himself to a pre-state attorney, he's probably in his mid-20s. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> but he knows enough to say, look, I want my name above the title. Yeah. And I want to shoot in this widescreen. He starts to make decisions that early on that are going to be his signature. Yeah. Things you know, like I'm going to shoot in this white... Right? This is my favorite. This is my aspect ratio yeah. because this is what the fucking big movies were made of, of. My youth, yeah. So I wanted I want them to look like that. And they look great. I mean, and they look great. What he's referencing
1: and the stuff he's doing then looks great.
2: And everybody you know? knew if every if anybody went to a Hitchcock movie, they knew that they were going to see an Alfred Hitchcock movie. Yeah. They were going to see a John Ford movie, a David Lean movie. So. I want everybody to know they're going to see a John Carpenter
1: yeah. movie. And I think he succeeds <laughs> with that by the time Halloween comes out. That now becomes, you know, oh, it's John Carpenter. Yeah, because I saw the basic
2: 13 wasn't necessarily uh, financially uh, successful,
1: successful. Not domestically for in the United States. But yeah, it, I mean, it,
2: it, gained, it garnered a lot of critical acclaim overseas starting in, in England. Yeah. But it wasn't until Halloween came where he... And, and even that took like two or three years. And then then this to, to g- gain speed success because it it ran in you know grindhouse theaters and and uh drive-ins and stuff. And so that led to
1: a reevaluation of this movie Assault on Precinct 13 when with the success of Halloween came out yeah. in, the, in in the states. Um he references a lot about uh Rio Bravo with this and and and, and you know the style of of trying to Make you know the homages to like Night of the Living Dead or stuff like you know, having it be kind of a, a that Western kind of value. I
2: feel like the, the Rio Bravo thing, I think, has been blown out of proportion, well, curbed a little bit in recent years, as opposed to like when we were in when we met and when we were in college and we were falling in love with films together yeah. and introducing each other to films that we already loved and, int- and being introduced to new films from f- new people that we're meeting, um, it was like, this is John Carpenter's remake of Rio Bravo. And now, 20 years later, it's like, it's two biggest influences are Rio Bravo and Night of the Living Dead because i've always said like this is much more if you're going to go with the term remake yeah this is much more of a weird remake of night of living dead oh, of course than in it Rio is real bravo <laughs> real bravo yeah. there's a couple <clears throat> of very minor like uh plot things like uh, basic concepts of a siege and like the main character being a man of the law and having uh Honor and being a professional, which is a very big thing for Howard Hawks, who made Rio Bravo, and having like the need to fulfill his duty of of, key, of, of carrying out justice. Like there's Hawksian elements in uh, Assault of Precinct 13, but for me, anyway, m- much less. Specifically, Rio Bravo. Like to me, it's like a loving homage to Howard Hawks, but not as much a loving homage to Rio Bravo specifically. Yeah, that's the way I look at it.
1: Let's take a break and hear from our sponsor. (laughs) I do have a question
2: to ask of you. (laughs) What's that, Dia? What exactly is Keeps? Well, Keeps it's a website where you can go and you can get hair loss medications. So it's not keeps isn't the name of a medication but it's where you can go to get the only two FDA approved hair loss products out there and generic versions. So even though you might have used these products before if you're you know, if you're worried about your hair, you probably haven't got them at this price.
1: So it's not necessarily a, a hair loss medication. It's it's <laughs> just a, an easy and discreet way to go about getting hair loss products and
2: treatments. Yeah, basically you go on the website, you answer like a five-minute questionnaire that's all multiple choice, and then you send some pictures of your hair, upload some pictures of your hair, and then a medical physician in your area takes a look, and they basically come up with a hair loss treatment for you. And I guess if you have questions, you can ask because, you know, just because they come up with... uh, a treatment for you, you don't have to do it, obviously.
1: So that, that's a good point. So you're saying that like... It's almost like a consultation. So they'll prescribe me a treatment, and it, if I decide to use it, it, it keeps... Will send me treatments right to my door every three months. So if I want to keep my, my fair... Uh, my fading hairline on the DL, keeps is a way to do that. And not yeah, let a lot say of people you don't want to
2: go to the doctor. Yeah. You don't, don't want to go out to the doctor and discuss this with somebody in Sure, person. This is a way you go on the website, they fill out that questionnaire, you send some pictures, you get a prescription for a uh, treatment, and then Keeps will send you every three months, I guess, one of these FDA-approved products.
1: And it is one of the only two FDA-approved products out there. Plus, Keeps offers generic versions of the only two FDA-approved hair loss products out there. It,
2: plus, you should note, these products are not to grow hair but to hopefully stop the hair. Loss, the hair loss.
1: Yeah, so it stops it right where it is and try so you won't lose any more.
2: And as they as they like to know, which is kind of funny, is it's only for the hair on top of your head. So
1: that they know <laughs> specifically, it's only for the hair up top. So, so I I don't, can't, it can help me with my beard.
2: They, apparently, it's not going to help you with your beard. So. Yeah, because you know my beard's a little spotty, and it's definitely uh, a product geared towards men, of course. So uh, if I mean, I'm getting to
1: the age now where I'm starting to see thinning up top. So this is something I think I would definitely be interested in. And luckily, I guess for our sleepover movie lover listeners um, if you're losing your hair and you want to do something about it check out keeps you will receive one month's treatment for free by going to keeps.com slash sat that's keeps.com slash sat for just, your first month free yeah just go to k-e-e-p-s.com slash sat keeps here today here tomorrow we're back and we were talking about specifically Rio Bravo. Yeah, it's weird because I rewatched Rio Bravo for this viewing and Rio Bravo's, you know, has a phenomenal cast. It's Howard Hawks. Um, I'm big into Ricky Nelson now because I'm watching Ozzy and Harriet. That's my new story. Yeah. You know, because I'm done with Hazel. So you got him in it. You got, uh, you know, John Wayne. You got Dean Martin. The dean. Dean's probably coming off, you know, he's starting his solo career.
2: Yeah, he had just ended his Waze. partnership with uh, Jerry Lewis. Well, well, he didn't end it. His partners say his partnership with Jerry Lewis, had
1: ended. It, yeah, phased out. So you have him in there. You have um, uh, Ward Bond, who we brought up, uh, Wagon Train on the Star Trek 6. A uh, podcast. Um, uh, you have Walter Brennan. Angie Dickinson is phenomenal in it. She, for me, is the most stand out of that. Where it's like any women out there want to see a great female role of the era doing like modern things in a movie. She's like I don't know in her early twenties or twenty in the movie. She's fabulous in that.
2: But um, well, Haw- Hawks in general, it's so weird because Hawks is so old fashioned and so conservative in a lot of ways. But yet, politically, politi- or you're saying probably, probably politically. But I just mean in like in how his style in shooting, taste. yeah, it probably not even not even in his filmmaking style, but like his mentality, and uh, but yet his female characters are always were always very strong, um, you know. And these were at a time when, like pre. Feminist movement and yeah. stuff. Like, he had very feminist... Messages
1: and going well, through... Well, characters. Yeah.
2: And yet, when the fem- feminist movement came around, he was probably very, like, anti-feminist. <laughs> you know, just from what I know about. Because he's very old school, yeah. you know? Um, and so she's, like, out of a long line of Hawksy women, from Lauren Pacall to... Uh, uh, his girl Friday. Yeah. If I get her name. At the, at Catherine Hepburn. Name. Well, not Catherine Hepburn, but also Catherine Hepburn. Yeah. Although, although Bring a Baby is a bad example of like a Hoxian woman. Yeah, yeah. But, uh, and it's, and that is also something that Carpenter tries to bring to Assault on Precinct 13 this idea of the Hoxian woman, this, the, the strong kind of female lead. You have, you know, there's a couple of, of traits that he's that Carpenter brings from Hawks and from Rio Bravo, which is, you know, Hawks was always very much like uh, these weird non-sexual love affairs between men, like the way men interact with each other, especially in a professional setting. Um, which we do see a bit here. So, but they're at odds of the law and the criminal. Yeah. And then the other thing is uh, the female, a strong female lead here in the character of Lee. Yeah. Played by uh, Laurie Zimmer, is that her that yeah. name? Um, you know, she's badass. Yeah. You know, we, we, I don't even know if it's ever explained what exactly she does in the precinct, but, you know, here's a woman who's, you know, when, when the shit hits the fan... She she gets shot. It doesn't even flinch. Yeah, I know she gets winged, <laughs> and she has to
1: hold herself there so she doesn't um, give away. Um, uh, what's his name in the in the um, you know uh, b- 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 Napoleon uh, Wilson, Wilson hiding out in the in the jail cell. You know
2: she and you know there's a little bit of of a, an attraction between her and Napoleon, and she's got some of those lines where you know everybody's like you know. Uh, he says something like, you are good. And she's like, well, sometimes. Yeah. You know, there's a, there's some of that kind of banter that we associate with, you know, uh, film noir or some of those Howard Hawks old school movies. Uh, you know, n- the whole movie is there's the running joke where Napoleon Wilson is looking for a cigarette. Yeah,
1: that's a very... Uh, I guess um, hawk specific, but that's almost like an old Western kind of a joke or having something like that going on. You know, and even, um, Napoleon, who's played by Darwin Johnston, who didn't really do that much. Uh, to me, he has a very much of a Ricky Nelson kind of a look who's out of Rio Bravo with, and how he acts and how he does stuff. And, um, you have that kind of s- sentimentality of the western, like yeah, where it's yeah. He's, you know, it's, my, let me tell
2: you a story. Yeah. yeah, but my point is, like, whole time he's looking for a cigarette, and the per- the only person that can give him a cigarette is is Lee. At the end, yeah. Well, not even at the very end. It's like kind of it yeah, you're going yeah. into the third act, and he's like, "Well, do you have a light?" And she has the light too, and she fucking she like strikes the match with her finger. Yeah, let's burn. You know, she's. She's just she's she's kind of badass, and we're you know we're looking at it at a time it's 1976. You know by that point the feminist movement is is kind of underway, but um still like those kind of female characters aren't being portrayed in movies all that much of that time. Yeah, I mean, and you know then there's the racial thing too. Yeah, you know much like Romero did with the character of Ben. In night of Living Dead we have our hero here is an african-american you know uh police officer yeah he's the he's the person of a in a, of authority in the, mo- in the movie and it seems
1: like it's his first day as a lieutenant you know yeah and, and, and that's where his, you know he's getting down and, and you know so it's his first day on the job in that role and then this is what he is he's
2: the one in charge and then you get like this aspect of um I know for this I never really thought about it in previous viewings. In this viewing, everything kind of seemed more clear. But uh, there is a little bit of a warriors thing going on. But then ultimately, the gang—the gang—is multiracial.
1: Oh, that, yeah. That's <laughs> I've always noticed that, and they even make no, they make mention of it on the radio that that even the people in the world are perplexed because at the time, usually it's like you know, black people say black yeah, people, yeah. Latinos with Latinos, white with white, or but whatever. I never
2: really put together that for some reason. Maybe I just never paid. T- maybe I did put together and just never really thought about it or forgot about it, but that the whole ceremony in the beginning is is like the warriors where they're like because of what happens in the first in the beginning of the movie which is that they the warriors or this uh, this movie where the gangs get kind of ambushed by the cops and just slaughtered that the gangs are now coming together so you have like the white gang and the black gang and the Hispanic gang and the Asian gang they have this blood oath they're coming together, oh, so you think those are the leaders of the other gangs coming together
1: yeah. to avenge because i've I, I've, it, I've seen it described as like a like an ambush at the beginning, but you know they're armed and they're like freeze and they run, and then they all get killed and then yeah. it it it, I, it seems like for me that that y- you go on to see what the gang's gang's capable of yeah yeah That I think the police I mean, are, i like, I'd, you know, yeah,
2: I'd say the word ambush and then thinking of it from their perspective yeah
1: yeah and because uh i never thought of it that way that 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 i certainly think that 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 scene is retribution they're going to go out and get revenge on whoever and whatever because of what just happened. But that's an interesting take that if those guys are all supposed to represent the other factions like the warriors and they're all coming together to have this blood oath. Yeah. To well, that's, I,
2: that was my interpretation of this time. That's yeah. what I'm saying. Like in previous versions. You never looked at it. I never really looked at it that way. But thinking of it, lo- watching it this time, it occurred to me that like, yeah, maybe this is they're, – they're forming a pact, a treaty. Yeah. Much like the warriors. To where, go. Which is like the idea of the warriors is – uh, Cyrus Cyrus wants to bring all the gangs together under one banner so that they can outnumber the cops and they can run New York yeah
1: but then but you never really well I don't I guess you could but I get You know, it's. I never think of the brutality in the Warriors I guess some of the gangs could but it seems here where the scary thing about this is that it's the level of violence that gets kicked up a notch and it's from any denomination where it's almost like it leads you to the horror aspect of it being a zombie or a cult. Well, yeah, I or mean, it's, it's definitely normal.
2: it's a, definitely a different movie and a different vibe than the Warriors. Although, you know had had the had everything gone smoothly during the meeting in the cemetery and the Warriors. Yeah. Who knows what would have happened. They would have all came together. Like, they might have come and just slaughtered all the police officers yeah, you know, <laughs> in yeah. a brutal way. You don't, We don't know because all of a sudden the attention gets drawn onto the Warriors. Yeah. So, I mean, that movie could have ended up being a very different and a much more violent movie. But we're also... Well, this is another aspect of, like, the Carpenter Carpenter thing, you know, Uh, the Carpenter themes being brought out in Assault for Precinct 13, uh, you know, representing we have... You know, Napoleon Wilson is the is the criminal hero. Yeah. You know, which we see again with Snake Plissken, which Snake Plissken was actually written before Napoleon Wilson. Yeah. So, in a way, Napoleon Wilson is written as a nod to Snake Plissken, not the other
1: way around. And that's a very Western kind of idea. Oh, sure. You I mean, Carpenter's
2: dealing with... Well, this is Westerns in general are dealing with a lot of uh, narrative convention and archetypes and stuff, and Carpenter's definitely playing on those, and Carpenter was a huge western fan you know so you know it's also westerns are thought the the way westerns are the way the story like western stories are told are a very classic style of storytelling you know they're very classic stories yeah and carpenter is a very classic filmmaker in a way so uh a lot of his movies can obviously can be compared to Western, but the, the idea of the gangs is you know this idea of faceless evil. I mean, yeah, we see it in Halloween. We see it again. I mean, there's a, actually the fog a fog. There's actually yeah, the fog definitely. There's a, and there's actually a lot of <laughs> weird parallels between this movie and Prince of Darkness. Yeah, where it's like in in some ways you couldn't get two movies to be more different in, in some in some regards, but also there's a lot of similarities like uh, they're both siege movies uh, you know it, here it's the gangs and in, in Prince of Darkness it's like the possessed homeless people outside they're both very LA movies um, and there's also there's all this talk in the beginning of Assault of Precinct 13 about the sunspots there's some kind of solar you know celestial reason Hinted at, yeah, in a couple of spots, and in Assault, and in Prince of Darkness, that some kind of weird lunar eclipse is happening. There's a, some other. There's there's an eclipse happening, which is linked to what's going on. There's a lot of these weird and parallels, kind of
1: very much like A Night of Living Dead, or well, to a certain extent. And there
2: are also two of the only Carpenter movies that are solely written by Carpenter. So I think. That also has something to do with that. I've often said that I think, in some ways, *Prince of Darkness* may be Carpenter's most personal movie, in that he wrote it by himself, not wasn't hired to write *Prince of Darkness*. He was interested in it, and he wrote what he was interested in at that time. And *Assault saw the thirteen is that way too. He wasn't hired to write write a siege movie. You know, he wrote the movie that he wanted to make. Yeah. Halloween comes around, and he's hired to write horror movie about babysitters you know he's given guidelines Um, the fog probably is another is probably another case where he's not asked to write the fog but he's probably asked to write a horror movie and he writes that with Deborah Hill so it's not just his sole input Um, but those are like the things that we're seeing in the in Assault and Precinct 13 that are going to become staples for Carpenter you know Um, the faceless evil the Siege is, you know, that's a very, from Assaulted Precinct 13, Prince of Darkness. There's parts of uh, They Live that are kind of like that. Obviously, Ghost of Mars, which is kind of a weird science fiction remake of yeah. Assaulted Precinct 13. He seems like he, he visits this a couple times, like you said, in Prince of Darkness, this kind of... Yeah, it's something you know, that interests him. Yeah. And the other thing that I kind of really love about this movie is that... It's a movie that exists because of uh, circumstance, yeah, unrelated events. You know that fate, in a way, brings this these groups of people together. Yeah, and it's such a it's such like fate brought you and I together. (laughs) exactly like this podcast would not exist if certain things didn't happen and you could argue that that's the case for every movie for every relationship for everything that ever happened but this movie is uh, is this culmination of like it's his first day on the as a lieutenant like you said he's given the cush job of just like sitting in this precinct which happens to be in his old neighborhood but it's like okay that's first that's event number one some weird circumstance something atypical it's not his that's not his job every day is to go to that place he's asked to go there so that's one we have criminals in transit one of them sick and they decide to stop there
1: they have to stop and that's the closest precinct yeah
2: so that's circumstance number two brings uh Tony Burton and uh, his character and, and Wilson to the to the jail. Yeah. We have the guy and his daughter. Who are looking to, it's, it sounds
1: like from the conversation. Another thing, when I was little, I thought the guy was like an asshole, like the, the father. Like he was trying to like, you know, shoo her away on the phone because I wasn't listening to the dialogue as a child. Yeah, yeah. But it just sounds like they want to just get their maid who's living in a really terrible neighborhood after maybe her husband or a relative died to move out of the neighborhood and maybe in with yeah. them. So they're actually doing a very admirable thing, like yeah, trying he's, to convince he's her. trying
2: a, to get her, re- rehearsing her lines so that the girl can, like, guilt that woman into leaving her situation and coming to yeah. move into their place. So it is very admirable. But it's like he stops. Because they haven't had any breakfast or something. To one, use, you know, you one know one to, at the ice cream thing, to he's, use the phone, you know. and he these
1: directions. So he's trying to find
2: a, place. Yeah. And the and the gang happens to be there, yeah. And then that that ends up being the McGuffin of the movie. The fact that his daughter, spoiler, <laughs> yeah, gets shot in that scene is what then start jump starts what's ultimately going to be the narrative of this movie, which is that he then seeks revenge. And then, in in getting his revenge, he becomes. Essentially, Barbara and My Living Dead. Yeah, he he takes he over. He loses the plot his plot shit and becomes,
1: <laughs> which is weird. After he's able to then get the revenge on Frank Doubleday, he then goes comatose once he gets to the police station and he's no help to them. That with anything, <laughs> even to let him know what's going. It's very much. Barbara's a little more like...
2: Well, at least Barbara starts to kind of pull her shit together by the end. A little bit. Her brother. And yeah, then yeah, she loses yeah, her yeah, shit no, again. You
1: know, rightfully so, mind you. Yeah, but no, she, ju- no judgment yeah, of Barbara. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Barbara <laughs> Everybody deals with things in their, their own way. way. <laughs> and she got away and all that kind of stuff. She shut down when she got to the farmhouse. He shuts down once he gets there. But, yeah, and it's almost like, you know, he, the rest, they don't need him anymore.
2: Yeah, his job was really only, you know, to bring the gang to the precinct,
1: and there's a connection there with kind of like the real, real Bravo. Is that then it's the idea of protecting the person who you have within the jail cell, quote yeah, unquote. Yeah. Either it be well like, the, the fellow officers, the person, the, the 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 citizen in trouble, or even then the yeah. convicts who were there. It's that
2: idea of the John Wayne character, and here the the uh, Austin Stoker character of Ethan Bishop, his job, like they're compelled to fulfill their jobs of carrying out justice. Yeah. Whether in real Bravo, it's people are trying to get him to let one of them out. Yeah. Because he's he's arrested like the brother of the guy who's... The heading. cattle bearer, yeah, yeah. They they want to get him out, and his job is to keep him in jail.
1: The Amoco, AA, MCO. <laughs> I forget his name, but that's the actor who plays him, yeah. In
2: this one, it's... Uh, Bishop's jobs not only to protect the people within the precinct that are under kind of like his jurisdiction, the lieutenant, but yeah. also to protect this guy.
1: Yeah, who that, we don't, he don't know why he's there. Because even the one girl, uh, what is it what's her face, um, Nancy Loomis? Loomis? Yeah, she's the one. Like let, let's let them go. You know, let's who we don't even. Well, know you'll why.
2: notice the only p- two people to I think I think even Tony Burton does it. The only two people to ever suggest like why don't we just give them what they want are the only two people that die.
1: Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So Just it's like, almost it, that part of that formula.
2: It's almost like, you know, you know it's that moral yeah. punishment of, of by, how the, by the writer being, or the yeah. filmmaker um, to be like, you know, you're willing to, you know, give him up. So she's the, she ends up being the first one of the group to, of the main group to pass away. Now, would Nancy Loomis, of course,. We know her best from Halloween. Yeah, but uh, she also shows up uh, in The Fog. She's got a pretty big part in The Fog. She's kind of like the assistant to Janet Leigh's character. Yeah, in The Fog, and then she plays Tom Atkins's uh, ex-wife or the wife he separated from in Halloween Three. Oh, okay. Where he's like, he goes to pick up his daughter, uh, p- pick up his kids, and they're like, I got the masks, and the kids are like, oh, we already got masks. Yeah, yeah. that's that's. And she was. (laughs) He gets a sick bag. We're going down the road. (laughs) And she was dating uh, Tommy Lee Wallace at the time. Uh, So that's how. Tommy Lee Wallace was a USC uh, friend of John Carpenter's who worked on. I think he did art direction on this movie, probably did art direction. I think also did some editing on Halloween. And also, even. Not a lot of people know this because everybody knows that Nick Castle, who was also. A USC guy who later became a director as well played Michael Myers in uh, Halloween. But Tommy Lee Wallace played Michael Myers in a few scenes. He was under the mask in a few scenes. Yeah, And then, of course, uh, they all directed movies. Um, Obviously, you know John Carpenter and Nick Castle went on to direct uh, Last Starfighter, which we covered on the show, and The Boy That Could Fly, amongst other things. And Tommy Lee Wallace went on to direct... Uh, Halloween 3 Season of the Witch which we covered on this show and the TV miniseries of It which we have not covered on the show <clears throat> amongst other things but uh, that's how Nancy Loomis got kind of brought into this early John Carpenter troupe yeah. of uh, filmmakers and actors was through t- Tommy Lee Wallace
1: and then you got Kim Richards who's young here people know her nowadays as the Beverly Housewives of Beverly Hills her sister is Kyle and Kathy Kyle is in Halloween, yeah. because she's the she's one of the girls that Jamie Lee Curtis is babysitting for. Okay, yeah. And then uh, Kathy then marries into the Hilton, becomes Kathy Hilton, and her daughter is Paris Hilton. So Kim Richards in this movie is actually Paris in real life's uh, aunt. You know, and then the connection of Kyle is the sister, like I said, her sister is in the kid in Halloween. So there's a connection there, huh. you know. So, and I forget what it's else. That's yeah, what else Kim Richards did. But like nowadays, well, she, people just know her. Kim Richards was her. in
2: like uh, you know, Escape from Witch Mountain.
1: Yeah, oh, she, yeah that's, that's it. Yeah, she was she huge was at the time. She for, was a Disney kid. Yeah, doing the child stuff. So that's even more crazy to see someone like her getting, you know, killed. I mean, it's so horrifying, that scene. And I think it's of the era, like even... You know, we, we we did the first Dirty Harry movie on here, but the third Dirty Harry movie, uh, The Enforcer, you know, it's, it deals with the, you know, having, like, say, the weather underground or those kind of domestic terrorist groups. That was a big concern in the 70s. And, uh, and you know, we talked to Randy Jurgensen. We've said that before. Go watch, listen to his interviews. He's a guy who was a cop who became an actor, and he talks about, you know, a lot of the stuff you hear about in the 60s and 70s about what the cops were dealing with, with all that kind of, you know, with the Black Panthers or the Black Liberation Army or the the F-A-L-N. So it's like these were concerns were in the 70s that people didn't think this was so far removed like you get in the Warriors where these gangs could come together and quite possibly maybe take over a city or something. And this is the horror you're playing on here where you're having, you know, uh, it, it's what's more frightening about this is that you know, they're supposed to be like juvenile delinqu- delinquency. We're supposed to, I guess, think these kids are young, but Frank Doubleday and all these people look like they're you know much older <laughs> than they're supposed to be portraying. Yeah. But it's like this could be this. There maybe is it a bridge too far to think that this could be very the next step? Is that you know, the uh, a super gang which in this movie is called what Blue Thunder? I don't know. Yeah, um, where the, that You've stumped me. That's that, uh, that gang is going to come together and it's going to be a gang of, you know, who cares what denomination or whatever. And then they're going to, you know, Almost be like mindless zombies or whatever to to then now go out and and systematically just you know for no I mean that's one of the other crazy things in the movie I think is just the census senselessness
2: of the violence. Yeah. Well, that's you know, you know that was also a very car- Carpenter thing, especially early on. Like we never really understand why Michael Myers is doing what he's doing. Yeah. As far as Pleasance is Donald Pleasance is concerned, he's evil. <laughs> yeah, that's all. That, that's all. <laughs> that's that all you need said. to know. uh Coincidentally, Donna Pleasance only did Halloween only did Halloween because his daughter had seen Assault on Precinct Thirteen and liked it. Yeah. And she said, Oh, like this guy did this movie and it's really good. You should work with that guy. But in what just but you know, the senselessness of the violence of of the lack of real motivation in Assault on Precinct Thirteen. Street
1: Thunder. Blue Thunder is a movie. Street Thunder is the name of the gang. But that yeah, that's
2: like what's scary. And that's what pulls this movie at times into like more of a horror film yeah. than uh you know um, a neo western or a or a drama or, or something. Or like exploitation you know, action piece. It's correlations that I that I've made to Night of Living Dead, aside from, you know, having a uh African American strong, positive uh African American protagonist and having, you know, the Barbara slash, you know, dad character who's Kind of the the vehicle into bringing like what's going to siege the place yeah. to the place. And, uh, but the other aspects of Night of the Living Dead and Salt of is that it is a siege of like a mass threat outside that, for all intents and purposes, is figuratively faceless and just, uh, persistent <laughs> yeah you know, you know like no matter how many these dudes they seem to kill uh, throughout the course of this movie they just keep coming well
1: they they, they work like on a level of, of almost like a mindless cult or or zombies in a sense where there's there's very little dialogue from them. And then as well as they start working as almost like a one. So when you see when they're yeah, like... It's very Borg. Yeah. <laughs> w- w- when you see them looking out the windows at them and they're like moving the cars or that kind of... You know, that There's always, an
2: efficiency going yeah, on that is frightening.
1: And it's weird because it's like... You, you, it, I mean... And when I was watching this, I was like, you know, in real life, this movie is just silly. Like, it's just, you know, it's just when you take it at face value, but it's done in such a way that it's really good. You know, but it's, you know, it is it is kind of a movie in the sense where they're cleaning up after themselves. They're, they're, you know, this is yeah, yeah. horrifying for me as a kid that they're putting the cars back after this big shootout.
0: Yeah, they're they moving move, the bodies. the dead bodies you know, so that it looks, if normal. anybody looks
2: on the street, you know, it looks normal. It, but this is something when you're saying there's like kind of the ridiculousness of it. It's interesting to see Carpenter or I should say hear Carpenter try to combat that in the dialogue of the script because they're telling us it's ridiculous. Yeah, they're trying to justify saying this is... They're like, you know, this is happening on a city. We live in a city. This is a city street. The cops are going to come. You know, (laughs) they're constantly telling each other and us as the audience that, like they're just they're just they're justifying the fact that this is a crazy circumstance yeah so by kind of telling us it's
1: almost like it's aware
2: yeah you know like Carpenter saying as a filmmaker like I know this is ridiculous
1: even to the point with the the, uh, non-denominational gang where it's like even the people on the radio like as crazy it sounds (laughs) every ethnic you know thing you know but I think you maybe have put the nail on the head where maybe it is the gangs are coming together it's a super gang now that has the you idea know, of coming like I said, out. said,
2: that that was...
1: And it's very much like I maybe said... Maybe like,
2: it's just because I have... I now, these days, have Warriors on the brain yeah. all the time. Yeah. It's on a lot, and I just, I watch it every time. <laughs> so, I mean, Warriors, it's kind of... Since before we did the podcast uh, a couple years ago, like, Warriors has really shot up to be like one of my all-time favorite like maybe top 20 or top 10 favorite movies of yeah. all time so maybe with like the influence of the Warriors like I'm, read, I'm either reading that into the beginning of Assault the Priest because I haven't seen this movie in well I guess it hasn't been that long because I did an episode of Wrong Reel where I talked about uh, with James Hancock where I talked about Carpenter and I probably watched it for that but before that I probably hadn't seen this movie since maybe we were in college or just out of it. So, I mean it's been a while. This is not a Carpenter movie that I I go to frequently. Yeah. You know, and that's not to say that I don't love it, you know. Uh this was definitely always a bigger movie for you than it was for me given the you know, the story that you told about seeing it when you were little, but um I went through phase, you know, early on in Carpenter was like I was as much as I loved things like Escape from New York and Assault the Precinct thirteen and Big Trouble in Little China, I was always more drawn to his horror movies. Yeah. And now as like he's as I've come to terms with the fact that he is probably my favorite filmmaker, like I don't think of his movies in genre anymore. They're just like the genre of John Carpenter. <laughs> so like I have come to kind of just love them all equally.
1: And he even he puts on um he he edited the film, but he then he puts on John Wayne's name, John T. Chance. Yeah, from Rio Bravo. From Rio Bravo, um, he t-
2: you know he tended to do that a lot. He does. Uh, that's another thing that's kind of common, a uh, kind of a correlation with Prince of Darkness. He says, I think he, I wa- he I forget, I should have researched it, but he he uses a he uses a pseudonym in uh, Prince of Darkness as well as maybe the screenwriter might be like something. Quatermass yeah something to that effect like it's a nod to the Hammer Quatermass experiment yeah Yeah. but you know because that movie for him was so influenced by the guy that wrote those movies, Nigel I forget the the guy who wrote the Quatermass who came up with the character of Quatermass Mm. to him that was like his homage to the Quatermass movies yeah so he used I think I think it was Quatermass as like a pseudonym so he tends to He's a filmmaker like, I mean, like all filmmakers, but you know, not he's, instead of try- away, if, if, instead of trying to shy away from his influences. For, each, for those movies he just he tells you he like, throws
1: them right in yeah John yeah.
2: T. Chance it was <laughs> like you said John Wayne's character's name in Rio Bravo yeah. John T. Chance edited this movie but it was Carpenter the right? and
1: it's funny because as I think about the two movies side to side and I hadn't seen Rio Bravo in years so I, I didn't remember they Rio Bravo and um and uh, El Dorado, I in Rio Lobo, I get them all mixed up. Yeah, because they're, they're so close and they're so similar. Mitch yeah. Mitchum's plays a drunk in it. We're over here. Dean Martin's a drunk in Rio Bravo. And by um, the way,
2: Dean Martin's really fucking good in that movie.
1: Oh he, yeah, he's fabulous in that. You know, it's, it's a and,
2: shame that he didn't go on to
1: make. More of those serious, more serious
2: movies. Yeah, because when he
1: hits, I mean, Ocean's Eleven, uh, the original Sinatra movie, is serious for the most part. But it seems like in the sixties, he kind of like a doing,
2: to it because it's a heist movie. Yeah, and and it's the kind of
1: thing and, and it's and cool. Like, I mean, because Sinatra did a lot of serious movies too. But yeah. it seems in this, and then Dean Martin did a whole series of like s- funny, spoofy spy movies. Yeah, in the, you know, so he gets kind of weird. Then he almost jumps the shark with the Cannonball Run movies near the end. <laughs> but you're right, there's a level of seriousness in there I mean, everybody's great. He had like two or three. Oh, he does also The Young Lions, which is phenomenal, which is uh, Marlon Brando, and I think it's Montgomery Cliff, and that's like a long movie about uh, the parallels of uh, Marlon Brando's, like an SS officer, and he becomes disillusioned as the movie goes on about what's happening with the Nazis, and it's not his party anymore, versus Montgomery Cliff and Dean Martin. I forget who's the stronger, but it's that realization within the war or whatever. Um, It's funny because... The um, Rio Bravo comes out in '59, and at the time, uh, in 1960, you have uh, Ward Bond, who's in real life J- John Wayne's best friend. Uh, he's in a lot of these movies. He's the star of Wagon Train. He drops dead of a heart attack in 1960, and they replace him, and Wagon Train goes on for another couple of years. But uh, the year before he dies, in it's a shock. I was shocked because uh, you know I love Ward Bond. To see him get killed near the beginning of Rio Bravo. It's like, oh my God, he gets shot in the back and dies. And that kind of sets stuff up like these people are fucking assholes, you know? Yeah, yeah. And that's kind of, you think about, if you set it up against Assault on Precinct 13, that replaces the shock of a 1959, war, the good old lovable Ward Bond getting killed yeah. is the... Kim Richards getting fucking shot in the the neck by the uh Well you know the Mauser uh ninety six gun. Yeah, I mean Which is like, the same gun by the way people will rec- recognize is what Han Solo uses, the broomstick Mauser. Um and also I think it's uh Rocketeer, right? Yeah. Because it it's a be. German it's a German gun. That was really popular. I think it's a ninety six, it's called a Mauser ninety six broom handle because yeah. of how this handle is, and that always is. It has a suppressor, like a silencer, on the end of it. Yeah. But it always has that weird look. Yeah. You know, it's a Nazi German kind of a gun.
2: You know, it's also kind of. It's like it's a little bit like we talked about in the last episode with John Wick, which is like they kill the dog.
1: You yeah, know? right at the beginning, which is you know, like
2: it's like <laughs> terrible territory. You know, you have to. It's the opposite of, of what we kill the cat. We bring we bring the the, the save the cat. Uh, books up a lot, which is like that you would have a character, you know, a a device for screenwriters that if you have a character save a cat in the beginning of the movie, you know they're a good character. Or do anything
1: good at the beginning. Yeah. I mean, it's like it's
2: it's giving a a name to a generalized action, but an action like saving a cat from a tree or something, which is like will endear that character. The opposite of that is if you have... (laughs) (laughs) the gang members shoot a little girl in the neck (laughs) and it's still something that you think about you'll hate them but then it also sets up the stakes like it sets up that like these guys will kill anybody yeah Uh, and
1: it it's still I mean now I think the you know the 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 doors have been kicked in, but for years that was, you never really see that level of violence towards a child. Usually it's... uh, it's, Well, that's why it was so shocking. Exactly. That's why it's
2: still so shocking.
1: You know, I I think it's, sadly, in this day and age, it's not as shocking as it used to be, but, I mean, me as a seven- or eight-year-old seeing that, you know, that horrified me. So I, I conversely, would not go back and watch this movie because I liked it so much, but because it was kind of, wow, that's horrifying. You know, and then the theme as well, you know, that, you know, he... Carpenter did the, did the music for the movie, so he has a very, every movie, you know, he, he's involved with the theme has a very sp- specific, I mean, I, you know, uh, on my way over here tonight when my mom was driving me over, I put the cassette tape for the soundtrack in,
2: and if you listen to the soundtrack, it can get a little monotonous. Because there's only, like, three or four yeah. cues, and, and it's Even, just, even like... If there's four cues, three of those are pretty simple. Yeah, are the tch, tch,
1: tch, tch, dun, 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 you know, but that one theme is phenomenal. And then the other theme, which is I think is called Pre thirteen, is literally we talk about in the Dirty Harry podcast how the influence uh, on Lalo Schifrin's score in Dirty Harry went on to like be a huge influence in cinema in the seventies and then gritty cinema. And Carpenter talks about uh, that soundtrack for Dirty Harry being a, the major influence on this soundtrack.
2: In the book, Scored to Death, Conversations (laughs) of (laughs) the Greatest Composer. Yeah, Carpenter talks about uh, the two big influences on... uh, for the Salted Presteed 13th score are Schifrin's score for uh, Dirty Harry... And the song Immigrant Song by Led Zeppelin.
0: That one. That, that, that of
2: kind Harrison of bass. Dun, yeah. dun, 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 that you dun, dun, see, dun, then dun, Thor Ragnar
1: used it recently. Yeah, yeah. He uses it <laughs> like twice. Yeah, <laughs> I know. It's like, that's again, they're getting their money's worth. They're like, we used it. Well, we well what Carpenter for it.
2: does is he just takes that riff and slows it down to like. Dun, 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 dun. Yeah. Might actually, my favorite cue in the whole thing is that subtle, like Rhodes. Oh, that's Piano. What, this is what
1: I was getting at, is Which that... is
2: very reminds me a lot of the opening track. Maybe it's not the opening track. It's the no, it's the track on the subway for uh Warriors. Okay. The the Barry DeVorzon score for the Warriors. Like that kind of love theme between the, oh th- that girl, I can't remember her, and Swan. Yeah. Like there's a feel like of that 70 seventy roadsy Yeah. Piano, Um, electric piano sound. But that's my favorite cue uh, for this is that very subtle, you know, it's brought in like maybe three times throughout a solo precinct 13, but it's also kind of what's playing at the end when the the shit has, you know, everything's over.
1: uh, Yeah, that was my broader point is that when you look at Dirty Harry, and in Dirty Harry there's a theme that's established, which I think it's called on the soundtrack the Mayor's Theme, but it ends up becoming Dirty Harry's theme that carries through all five movies but in the first dirty harry movie the um the score it first shows up when they dr- when they realize a girl's dead they're taking her out of the well yeah. then at the very end of the movie after he kills scorpio and he throws his badge away and it's it's almost it's it's not hilarious, but it's so close to each other. It's almost like you know, where we wanted to use that theme, but we couldn't, so we get sued. <laughs> yeah. The carpenter just doodle around and make you like because it even ends the same way, like do do do
0: do do do. Like yeah. it's like
1: it has it, it's it it functions very well within Assault on Priest Thirteen, but it's very much like it's the same sound. It's the roads kind of like you know, it's yeah. like, like you know, and it's it's very much. Uh, like the Dirty Harry theme of, of the Harry Callahan character and it's like almost as internal and every time you see it at the end of like um, uh, I think it's at the end of the Dirty Harry movie most prevalent when you have like the camera back away on a helicopter shot and him walk away you have that yeah. and it's usually a different version in each movie to, even to the part in the 80s where it's like in you know, a rock you know <laughs> guitar and stuff um, yeah
2: well Carpenter supposedly I've heard different stories he, it's either he did this in a day or three days and he's using like real old synth equipment right well, I mean, this is mid seventies so what he does is analog baby. I believe it's tommy Lee wallace too uh it's a guy named Dan Wyman mm-hmm. and uh, I believe to my- re- to my best of my recollection, Dan Wyman was like the electric the electronic music like teacher at u s c and so he went there to do uh this score, and basically Dan Wyman was kind of an engineer in that, like, in those days, you had to, like, tune the... You had to physically to tune those synthesizers to get different sounds. So if you wanted a string sound, which is like the sound that he... that's in that's in this movie, he had to like Dan Wyman had to make that it make that sound. There was no presets. Yeah, you know they wanted to hit a button like, give me the string sound. You had to like
1: so every day you have to remember. That was a thing too. I forget how I used to because I I do sound in my day job. And you talk to board ops and how you know you go to digital boards now and how easier it is. But in the old old days, especially when you're doing albums, you'd have people in the uh, that were empl- employed by the maybe the the studios the, where you're recording. Is that all their job is? Is just put everything back. It's like you know, there's a continuity person yeah, taking yeah. Po- Polaroids every day of how like your costume looks today, or Blake beat up in the movie. Well, it's like that. I, I don't know what the technical term is, but there will be somebody like you know, maybe you're you know you're a couple of years out of college and you're uh, not interning, but you're you're kind of uh, learning how to be a board op, you know, a mix, yeah. your job would be to make sure all when you come in in the morning, the board is the way it was left. Or like you're saying, all these, it's a room full of synths so you have yeah. to like, turn knobs. Different patches and knobs. Yeah. And that's that another mean. thing. It's like you think about the old phone systems uh, and that's something that I saw leave being... Uh, in television and seeing and seeing how going from analog to digital, where you have patch bays behind you, and it's like the old, you know, you think of telephones, or you have the girl like, oh, what what number? And she would patch. Well, I mean, we you know. see a
2: little bit of that in this movie. Yeah, where the, you Nancy know, see Loomis is sitting at the the board, the board, the yeah,
1: patch, and that was you'd have that in the old days in the same, the same wires and everything, which they still use it today to a certain extent. How you patch over this to this you want to have this microphone be heard by this board or whatever you patch everything yeah. so you'd have this by m- crazy meaning,
2: meaning running like cables yeah and
1: like with a little it looks like a quarter a quarter inch peg you'd plug it in and you plug the other end in and it looks like almost like a nylon like a jump rope and then yeah, that'd yeah. be your patch and so you'd have a patch bay with all these little holes and almost looks like uh, the holes you put like light bright sets in and then you'd have you know people and each hole is a different designation this is you know yeah. you're going from here going
2: to here. in in the in in this one, out that one, into that,
1: you know. I mean, so still
2: some editing, even video editing is set up that way because you have like the different decks and, yeah. and all that stuff. But so he he started working with Dan Wyman, um, and Wyman was basically just an engineer. He would he would do he would make the sounds on the thing, and then Carpenter would play them. Carpenter's not a technical guy when it comes to music. He's much more like the creative guy. And so he works with Dan Wyman on this movie, Halloween, and The Fog. Mm. And then I think on uh, Escape from New York is when he meets Alan Howarth. And then Alan Howarth becomes his guy through uh, They Live. Yeah. And Alan Howarth is also the en- an engineer, um, much more into the technical stuff, but also did also provide some creative... Uh, input and helped write some of that stuff. He, uh, in some ways, he got into the synths um, partially because he was basically what Dan Wyman did for Carpenter. He did for the band Weather Report on the road, Mm. which was like these giant synths and electric pianos and stuff were made for studios, so they weren't made to be
1: you lugged around, lugged
2: around, and put on trucks. <laughs>
1: yeah, brought up <laughs> to a stairs to a venue. And so
2: they needed a full time guy to sit there just uh, for the upkeep. Yeah, you know, and and uh, that's how he kind of really got into the synth stuff. But uh, you know, given the limitations of of the of the equipment and the uh, schedule for music, I mean, Carpenter only ends up writing, like I said, three or four cues that then get used over and over again, or maybe finally. Tweaked throughout the whole thing, but it really is only a handful of cues. But I mean, as you're saying, uh, they're perfect for yeah. for this movie. Like they're they're iconic to Carpenter fans, but also just uh, so. Like, it's one of those things you can't imagine this movie with a different score. Yeah,
1: and it's it's something that wasn't available for years until, like, what, 2003 or so, I think? There was, there was bootleg versions available, but you couldn't find a – there wasn't an official release of the soundtrack. Yeah,
2: there's an official release, and then there's a – I want to say it's British. It's definitely European. There's a Blu-ray that came out – Um Possibly German, I don't know. But there's a Blu-ray that came out that it's it's great. And yeah, it's beautiful. The art is great, uh, and as a bonus disc, it has the soundtrack.
1: And I have the soundtrack of this when we met Alan Howarth. You're friends with him when I met him, and then it was. But it's I think it's, it's he redid it. Yeah, it's that and Dark Star on one disc, and then it's just by him. But it sounds yeah. Almost he quote, does well. Know.
2: He does a he he painstakingly tries to re. Uh, replicate the yeah. sounds and stuff when he does that stuff because those soundtracks were not – I think when he did those, they weren't readily available or he was trying to do them with more fidelity than the original recordings had, sound better. So he has a couple of those. He has Solid Brees Turning 13 and Dark Star, which Dark Star is a tough soundtrack to find even. And then when you find it, it's not a great soundtrack Um Not that the music's not great, but, like, the releases of it aren't great. Uh, And he did a really painstaking job of watching the movie because he didn't have the tapes. Yeah. (laughs) And trying to figure out what sounds and and what was going on. And he also did one for The Thing that's really interesting, where he worked with a guy who did the orchestral stuff, but he did the synth stuff. And he and uh, Howarth ended up uh, putting three tracks, replicating three tracks that Carpenter wrote for The Thing and putting them on... His release of the thing, so the only way you can get those non New contracts of the thing are on the Howarth release of that. Oh, that's interesting. But um, yeah, the the Howarth release of *Assault Precinct theme is pretty good. There's a there's a couple of good releases of it now. Um, I want to s- Death Waltz, I think, are Mondo. Now they're one company, but at the time. I don't know. Remember who put it out at the time, but they released it on vinyl and I think audio cassette. <laughs> oh, really? That'd um, be cool. With a, with a pretty cool cover. Yeah. Um, but yeah, all that stuff. Carpenter's gotta had the, the big resurgence uh, since uh, you know and since we started doing this podcast. There's been
1: touring and all that kind of thing. And, and yeah, and he
2: played he played this theme. I want to say it was the second or third cut on the concerts. I think he opened the tr- the concerts with Escape from New York, and then maybe this was the second track. And of course, uh Assault and Precinct Thirteen went on to influence everything from a remake in two thousand five, I think it's two thousand five, to uh an episode in the last season of The Punisher <laughs> is basically Assault and yeah.
1: Precinct Thirteen. Like episode three or so and they're all in there. Yeah. yeah. Um it's because when, when I like at the beginning of the movie when when um you know it's his first day as lieutenant uh uh, and he's trying to figure out, you know, uh, Bishop, where he's going. And there's that great line. It, it's very, again, very Western, where he's like, there are no more heroes, there's only those who follow orders. It's like very Western. He's like, okay, he goes to this bullshit, yeah. you know, job. Um, and then, you know, he's saddled with what ends up happening. Um, well, it's
2: definitely, it's, it's not only is it very Western, but it's a very classic way of foreshadowing. Yeah. He is going to be a hero. By the time of this day is through, He's going to <laughs> by the time the, the sun rises on the next day, he's going to be a hero. Yeah, for this job that he didn't think was gonna be much fun at all. I mean, even uh, so scary in the
1: movie the, the, at the beginning, the, the the Frank Doubleday and his band of merry m- mischief makers are driving around in an am it's, it's an AMC Matador, and it has those weird door handles that kind of like look like belt buckles. You have yeah. to open. Though every time I see those door handles it reminds me of this movie because they drive around and just the way he shoots the sniper rifle it's almost very phallic it just comes out the way it comes yeah, out of the yeah. window with the sound and then you know you don't know what's and then they, they've got in their sights like an elderly woman they have in sights like a wino and it's you know you don't know what until you have the big you know Kim Richards being killed uh it's just so frightening, you know, that just they the don't you know, they don't talk and all that. We have a nod to when um the the father goes after them and chases him down. I think it's it's either there or later on when Tony Burton gets away and steals the car and drives, but you hear it's the it's the Mustang sounds from bullet. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you can hear that, you know, like that. And then, you know, when he he ends up killing Frank Doubleday in in a and just, you know, shoots him and then he goes to the to the precinct uh, and it's funny like when, when we're watching the scene when the, the convicts are coming on the bus and that one guy's sick I was getting flashbacks to the fugitive with <laughs> Richard Kimball is he on the bus you know because yeah, like yeah. that's how they get in the fugitive the, you know they, they try to the guy you know fakes a, a sickness and then that's how they get they stab I think the, I forget what they do they stab the the, the officer and the bus flips over and all in the fugitive so I, I found that very funny I remember um,
2: the thing that I find funny and I always forget about it until I see the movie again is like right in the beginning when uh the, the lieutenant wow. uh, Alvin Bishop played yeah. by Austin Stoker is, is driving there's like some black woman. Oh, there's a couple the people come
1: up and look, and then they. But there's the
2: same woman like keeps on like creeping up and looking at his car, like what's going on in yeah, there? Yeah, they have a camera attached? You know, because
1: he's <laughs> talking on it. You see people come up because it's back then they you know they would just go film around and you know they're very minimal. I was even thinking
2: he probably because there was also probably there had to be a
1: rig on the, on the car. Oh yeah, on the he's probably side. got a. I think which I think, he which I think him, there
2: might be a story where like on the first day. They fucking totaled that rig. Oh, really? I'm not positive, but I kind of remember hearing a story. Because I
1: would the, think it's just that they have just the camera hooked up and no one's manning it. It's just that yeah. they, the frame looks good. They hit go and maybe sitting, someone's sitting in the back seat or whatever yeah. for doing sound. But, you know, I'm sh- you know, you have a whole big-ass... Camera sitting on the side of your thing. But I wonder even if, if those are real people, hitting, you know, the, the people that he superimposes a sniper target on. Is those just them grabbing people? It does look like just you know, real people. Yeah, like the, the older black people. lady, the elderly lady, she looks real. The, the wino is debatable, but, you know,
2: you don't know. Now, we keep on bringing up Frank Doubleday. He goes on to be in, Escape from New York. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and that was Dion clenching his teeth Ow, together. It goes all my feelings <laughs> And he's the one that delivers the message, right, to the yeah to to uh, what's his face? Who is it? It's uh, is it um, Van Cleef? Is it Van Cleef? No, I thought Van
1: Cleef stays, but he sends Stacy Keach, maybe or somebody. I forget who he sends. No,
2: Stacy Keach is on the Escape from L.A.
1: Oh, oh then is it maybe Tom, Tom Atkins? Atkins? Yeah, maybe Atkins. Okay.
2: 10, but, uh, five. <laughs> yeah, he's he got his hair all spiked up. And,
1: he's, and that's a role that's a forgettable role, but he's so good in it, you know, that it's memorable. <laughs> you know, it's just like he's, and then how he looks is, is, is half the battle, but the stuff he's doing in there is just crazy. He's a phenomenal actor that, like we said, passed away, I think, a year ago as of this recording, May of 2018. Uh, he was in a lot of episodic television at the time, but he didn't really do too many movies that I remember. Great name though, Double Day. Frank Double Day. Name's Double Day. Frank Double Day. This also has a lot of um, shades, almost of like old Detroit in the RoboCop kind of future, where like because they don't really let you know is this supposed to be kind of the, you know, like the Warriors we find out in the subsequent releases that Walter Hill tells us. I never put the connection together as a kid when I watched it. Yeah, Yeah, it's supposed to be like a like not a post-apocalyptic future, but like a dystopian future. Is this supposed to be here kind of a future?
2: I don't think so. I mean, I've never thought of it that way. But one thing I do.
1: Well, I never thought of the Warriors either, but I yeah. that's supposed to be the same thing. When you don't...
2: think of them but when, when you put that in concept with the war, you when you think of that in relation to the Warriors, it's like yeah, okay, yeah, there's because it's such a the, the Warriors is so stylized, yeah, yeah. you know, like, all the gangs are, yeah, you know, I mean, the top hats, and the, you know, the the, the, <laughs> the yeah. baseball fury, yeah, and the, the, the finnels. and it's the... like okay, some weird future where the gangs dress that way. All right, whereas this one seems much uh, more integrated. realistic,
1: <laughs> but. Uh, but it's like they lost. It's like you know, at the point where the the police have lost control of the juvenile delinquency problem. That's why, it, to me, it seems like a lot of RoboCop, old Detroit, where sure. crime has gotten to a level that people. It's not to the point where it's sarcastic, where people are being killed and people are laughing at it. Yeah, but yeah. You know.
2: I think you know, I think it's obviously dated because of the cars and the attire and the hairstyles and stuff. But I think Carpenter does a good job of. By writing it, like, in this classic style with these, like, classic, you know, westerny or just classic storytelling dialogue and all this stuff, he does a good job of, like, making it as timeless as he can. Yeah. You know, without, you know, the, like, the story and the dialogue don't, aside from maybe, like, you know, let's not flip a coin, let's play potatoes. Aside from <laughs> maybe, which I did when I was little, <laughs> so that's another thing. I'm like, you playing potatoes! <laughs> because aside from something like that, uh, for the most part, you know, he does a good job of, of not making like, a a kitschy movie that, that kind of plants it in a certain time period. But one thing I do want to mention because I love the exchange, and it's so early on, and it's, it's one of those lines, you know, uh, you know, that you brought it up with, uh, Escape from New York. You know, some of the, like the dialogue of like remember the, you know the hell, the, the flyers or whatever you know like these lines yeah, that hell, hell
1: fire over Stalingrad <laughs> or something
2: that bring you know bring up uh, that tell you so much in so little like an economic way of really establishing a character is that exchange that uh, the police officer Bishop has with Lee when they're getting coffee and he looks on the desk. And then he tells her the story about how when he was, he grew up in the neighborhood and his dad took him there when he was little. Uh, it's that Alfred Hitchcock
1: story where, yeah. He, yeah, you know, yeah, Dad scared him, put him in jail, whatever.
2: And it was for like foul language. And she's like, well, did it, you know, she, and she implies, she says something about like, was it your dad or somebody that took you out of this neighborhood? And he says, no, when I was 20, I walked out of this neighborhood of my own. You know, it says like so much about that guy. And it sets up like, this is the kind of guy that's going to, when he's, pushed up against the adversity that he's going to come to, like you understand that he's capable of it. Yeah. You know, like he's self-sufficient. He took himself out of a bad n- neighborhood and, and joined the police force and isn't a lieutenant now a lieutenant. Like
1: probably wants to give back and write,
2: you know, so much of like so much of you learn so much about that guy and, and such a, a beautiful, narrative way without loads of exposition yeah. or anything it's just it's, it's the great touches stuff like that you know it just
1: well even like you said the not, there's no I don't know if it's because Carpenter didn't want to fuss with it but you don't get any justification for any of these actions that's when it goes back to that scary the 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 the, the brutalistic violence in it you know that that is that is that these, these yeah. gang is doing the unjustifiable shooting of a freaking you know child and not even caring you know i mean one thing you're messing with the ice cream man and then you then you, you kill the kid because you, you know, <laughs> you, know it, you know it's like that kind of it's like shooting a dog in john wick or not yeah or, yeah or killing the dog in john wick it's 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 this way of uh you know telling a story and you don't have a lot of Nobody in this movie goes on to become huge stars, you know. They're just normal looking people that, you know, that uh, even the the guy who plays N- Napoleon Wilson's kind of like, "Oh, you know, it's an interesting casting choice." You know. <laughs> yeah. He,
2: um, he is an interesting. You know, I mean, I feel choice. like if
1: you got somebody else in there of of his level that was a little more famous, it could back, have been, a, you know. He
2: comes back I think in The Fog. Yeah. Like a corner in a very small part. I think and he, he, did he, a, he did a
1: lot of TV work. At the he time. did a lot of television. In the uh, But he
2: is like it's said that Carpenter might have actually he, – he was friends with that guy. Yeah. And then he kind of wrote that k- character for him. Yeah. But he is kind of really cast against type. Yeah. Not so much so that, like, it just doesn't work, but it is, like – he is against type. Like, he is – you don't ima- – it's hard to imagine that guy being – some guy who's so bad that nobody will even mention what he did. <laughs> yeah, it's weird. I mean, it, it, but he does a great job. Yeah. I mean, I'm not knocking the movie at all, but it's just, it's it's an interesting casting choice for that part. Yeah, that's and the why he I... pulls it off. It's just, it's just a ch- an interesting That's choice.
1: why I, me watching a lot of this Ricky Nelson stuff recently and seeing him in his teens or adult years acting, not being a child actor, it, he has that kind of a a, a, a feel to him and how he looks and how he talks and it's just uh, odd because a lot of him and then uh, what Austin Stoker Stoker yeah he goes on to, he's, he was in Stoker Stoker yeah, he was in a couple of Blackploitation movies Planet of the Apes of the Planet
2: of the Apes movies and then I think
1: he's in the Planet of the Apes TV show maybe too and he did a lot of I think he's in Kojak he's in Cagney Lacey he's in a lot of stuff around this time
2: and there's also guys like uh, Story. Henry Brandon who plays the Sergeant Chaney who's the guy um, when he when the character the black police officer walks into the precinct. To death sergeant? Yeah, he was, he played the character of Scar in The Searcher. So you can just imagine like that guy's picture coming across.
1: Oh, Carpenter's, Carpenter's desk. desk. Like, yeah, yeah.
2: Get yeah.
1: Gonna definitely use him. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I mean, it's just it's it. I think the, the 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 scariness of it all comes out of the idea of just this almost the, almost like I mean, somebody on, on online called it one of the greatest zombie movies of all time, but there's no zombies in it. It's like this this yeah. idea of going from like Night of the Living Dead, where it is this collective who are kind of symbiotic, where they don't they they all have a plan, but well, you I never think see them talk. You know,
2: the thing that's scary about Night of the Living Dead is that there's so many of them. They're the undead
1: they're your, maybe your relatives or you friends know, like, yeah
2: like you, the people that you might know you know and there's the, like the grotesqueness of uh, decay yeah. going on for me, what's scary about the, obviously there's so many of them. The numbers are scary in Assault on C 13, but it is like their
1: efficiency. They, they wipe out the. I, I was at the other thing at the end of this movie is like they just wiped out the entire youth population of L.A. Or you know, <laughs> I mean, because all these whoever these because they kill so many people. Yeah, yeah. You know,
2: yeah. But but there is a level there, of efficiency on th- it. It. that is that is frightening. Yeah, because it's like it's one thing. It's like if there's just a bunch of kids outside with guns. And sticks and stuff, but yeah. it's like the stealthiness of it, like you said, the way that they like they work together as a group to move the cars, put the cars back, take the bodies. Like, like the thought of walking
1: up and putting that, the dropping stri- the blood and throwing out the uh, strategy, you know, of everything. Yeah, or coming in the back door, you know, by the jail uh, the the cells. That's scary. Coming in the back way, you gotta have every through the windows. No screaming when
2: they get shot. And then you get like the idea of like. Something like the Borg, where like they'll just charge, and like those first guys know they're gonna get it, and they don't care. But it's just like you know, like almost like they're almost like they're zombies, but under the control of something, not yeah. just. You know, like, like a cult or something. Yeah. You
1: know, it's, it's 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 a frightening concept. And cults were big back then, like we said in '77 with Jonestown. All I like that was, you know, a worry of of or, or the Manson family, the, the yeah. ritualistic. But that's ritualistic why I mean, that's why I healings.
2: would make the, diff, the I would differentiate. I would make the different. You know, make the argument that they're not so much like zombies, but because like that's not what's scary about it to me. So yeah, what's scary about it is like the fact that they. Yeah. yeah, they're really
1: good planners. <laughs> they,
2: they plan this out yeah, really they, well, especially because and the they, loyalty they have because they didn't really know that this was going to happen yeah. when they woke
1: up. That that's what I'm saying. <laughs> so they have they're able to just really call, send out a signal, and everybody suddenly <laughs> It'd be interesting there's and see see, watch
2: this movie from there,
1: like Rosencrantz and that are dead.
2: Yeah, so say okay, now you're going to go over here, and you know, they're, they're a lot deploying. of hand signals
1: <laughs> telling people, yeah. about,
2: uh, telling guys to go different directions. Or oh, you do a
1: spoof, you know, and they have it be like you know they, they have the hand signal wrong. That's what they're moving the car. Why are they moving the cars out? I don't know. Just like them do it, you know, it's you know, and they put everything, but back. It, I
2: mean, it is frightening. I yeah. mean, it's it's without a doubt frightening. I mean, it's and it's you know, a carpenter also loves like guys like Peck and Paul, and something like uh, Straw Dogs is undoubtedly you know, had yeah. its mark on this movie, like a, a bit of an influence. Sure. I mean, in some ways, the father character is. In some ways could also, you could relate them to like the David Warner character in Straw Dogs, whereas David Warner's character in Straw Dogs is kind of despicable and he really should just give that motherfucker up. Yeah, <laughs> But it is like there are certainly are correlations that could be made between... Uh, you could just what I'm saying is you can just see Carpenter's influences. Yeah, you know, totally because he because he loves Straw Dogs. I mean, I don't know if he loves it like it's his favorite movie, but I know that like he's taught classes where he's shown Straw Dogs. Yeah, because it made such a big impact. on I
1: him. wonder how that plays nowadays, Straw Dogs, because I haven't seen. That I don't know. In years, I didn't see I the like remake. Like there was a remake. I didn't I, see the remake but I didn't either. See it. But I feel like nowadays audiences may you know that may not play as well. nowadays with you know
2: <laughs> uh, current current times,
1: yeah. Uh, and so when he comes out. When he when he comes out with this, there's a big problem with passing ratings boards because they want to give. Him an yeah, they
2: were all like, "Oh, this is gonna PG rating."
1: Yeah, this is gonna be fine. It's going to be, we're gonna be airing on ABC Night Movie, and then they're like, "No, you know, they're, they're you have a brutal the brutality. Gets, gets an X. Yeah, because of specifically because of the the scene with, in the ice cream truck. So they so, have I I don't understand how they get around this, but they're just like, Sh, cut it. Show it to the MPAA board. They'll give you the R rating because you show them the cut version, but then just distribute the X rated version. Yeah. And there's no backlash. And like, no one takes them to court or fines them for it. Yeah. You know, Apparently because nothing no one noticed, ever- You know, like, you think the uh, MPAA would come back at Carpenter like, hey, you know what? 30 years ago, you-,
2: you were. know, probably by the, time, by the time that it played on television- that was probably more acceptable. Yeah. You know, probably didn't play on tele- on television until the 80s.
1: And do you think it still shocks? I mean, I wonder how for a younger audience, for like millennials or people under 30, uh, people well, who, are, mean, you know what I mean? Like, I mean, nowadays, with that's what I'm saying, where you have such, you're so desensitized to violence, where you have like a fucking soap opera, a zombie soap opera, which is like, would have been hard... Or maybe X in the 80s when we were growing up and is now on cable
2: television. I don't think so. I mean, I think the only way you can That's, shock people into uh, getting a reaction is something like John Wayne. Like, I think you have to do something to a dog. Yeah. Like, that was... An animal. <laughs> yeah. An animal. You know, because I think people at this point are so... You've seen it before. You've seen it before, I think, you know, I and, think for the most part, a lot of people including myself probably even more so myself I have a very negative view on people other people and humanity. Yeah. <laughs> you know even if they are children. Yeah. You know whereas you know it's it maybe is wrong to feel this way but like you know like even you said like you avoid avoided watching John Wick because what you heard about like and I've heard that from other people that like they won't, they don't want to watch it because the dog gets killed. But yeah. you, you tell them that a little girl gets shot in the neck with a pre-63. breech. All right, yeah, that's <laughs> fine. Yeah, I'm used to that. Yeah, they're both that. fake. They're both movie, ma- like movie magic.
1: Yeah, but sometimes you, what you're learning now is, especially in the old days. Well, they, I'm not the animal. Not talking you know, about the old. Days. I mean, you know, but talking about now. You know, so, well, look at that. There's that Dennis Quaid movie that came out a couple of years ago. That dog movie. Then you see they they leaked the footage of like they're throwing the dog in the water. Dog's trying to get out. They're like kicking the Jeremy Shepard back in the... You you don't know how. And, you know, it's apples and oranges, but it's, uh, you know, I I certainly see see our Blade Runner podcast where we start philosophizing (laughs) about
2: the thing, you know. The nature of humanity.
1: I mean, even Carpenter says that he, you know, when he looks back at that... That he probably wouldn't do it now. ...shoot it that way, and then even him and Dan O'Banion had a riff, and then O'Banion at this point, you know, when, when he screens the movie, he's upset at Carpenter because of the scene, and he says... But he makes some sort of statement like Carpenter's, he, he treats, this is how he treats characters in his movies. He doesn't care about them, and it's almost like how he treats real people. Yeah, well, and they had a, a huge
2: falling out because of Dark Star.
1: And Carpenter, some people say, you know, isn't a pleasant person to meet sometimes, or, you know, I don't know how it's hard to wrap... you. You've, you've talked to him in an interview. It's hard to sometimes get him out yeah, of
2: Yeah, he's a, you know, he's he's, a, an, he's an interesting guy. He's a weird guy. I don't, look, I mean, the fact that he's had. Fallings out, yeah, with a lot of people, whether it's Dan O'Bannon and from uh, Dark Star to uh, Dean Cundy his DP to, who shot on you know, yeah. to Alan Howarth. Although you know, Howarth certainly doesn't have any hard feelings. I mean, I don't think there was any kind of blow up, but I just think these—it's his movie, you know—and I think it, he. Especially early on, I think he had a very... uh, Like singular vision? Or? Yeah, he had a singular vision, a very specific thing that he... Like, uh, vis- vision is a good way. Like, how he saw his career going. How he wanted to project himself as a filmmaker. And... It's a good way to stand out, too. You make a movie like
1: this with something over it as this, it's going to have people talking.
2: But I think, I don't know... I've never talked to Carpenter about it. I don't I'm not gonna, you know, you know, uh place any blame, but I can see or probably have heard that, you know Starkstar was much more of a collaborative effort between him and Dan O'Bannon. And then I think at some point Carpenter saw it as a calling card to move his career forward and he made it a John Carpenter movie. <laughs> And I think that that if if that's what happened, I think that's you know why Dan O'Bannon was so mad because yeah. all of a sudden, like all his hard work on a movie is now somebody else is taking what he thinks should be credit that's should be shared. Yeah. And Carpenter says, you know, he's been asked why didn't you work with Dan O'Bannon again? He's like, well, Dan wanted to direct movies, and I wanted to direct movies. Yeah. And two directors trying to work together. Is not a good thing, <laughs> not an easy thing to work on a, a singular project, and I think that's probably where that happened. At some point, he had a out with Dean Cundey. I don't know the any specifics about that. It's uh, right around
1: the time when Cundey goes with Spielberg, right? You know,
2: yeah. I mean, Carpenter says he said that Cundey wanted to go on and direct himself, like be a director. Um, but I, there's more to it. I don't think Carpenter will talk about it. I don't know if he even thinks I don't even I won't suspect that he thinks he did anything wrong and maybe he didn't. Yeah. I mean, we don't know the stories, but uh he is an interesting guy and I think when it comes to business, he probably is a little cutthroat. You know, I think he does. Look, if the guy's he's going to put his uh name above the well, title. It's very much like the
1: old days. He's very much like a John Ford, a Peck and Peckinpah, a Hitchcock, where you're right. He's putting his name on top of the title. It's his movie. Yeah. It's his way or the highway, or you know, and, and I mean, for right or wrong.
2: And especially those early movies he edited, you know, he does the music. Because I asked him when I did the book, I, I said, you know, look, at John, at some point.
1: John, baby, booby,
2: <laughs> <laughs> you, but, know, cause, you know, because, you know, his thing was like I was always the fastest and the cheapest. You know, I did. I saw Bracey 13. They say he Halloween. says he,
1: the, the urban legend is he wrote this in three days. I don't know how. Yeah, that is, I would imagine yeah. that
2: that's probably right. I mean, there's, that's technically not a lot going on in yeah. it. You know, and... <laughs> yeah. And uh, so I, spent, I said to him, I said, look, this is what you always say. You say that you you were the cheapest, you were the fastest, it was the easiest, you did it. But at some point, you could afford other composers. I mean, you had Neil Cohen do the thing, you had uh, Jack Nietzsche do uh, Starman, but... You could have went on that. Those uh, big trouble in Little China. Those movies had big enough budgets where you didn't have to do. It. He's like, okay, okay, I see where you're going with this. And he says, like, it was a way to put further have control over the movie.
1: Yeah, because he even goes and does stuff unaccredited for the thing. You know, it's like you know, instead yeah. of going back to Morricone. He's like, I'll just do my own Morricone-esque stuff, and no one will talk well, about it. Well, the fact it. that he hires you know?
2: Morricone and then <laughs> Morricone sends him a... sends him music, or plays him music, and he says, that's, look, it's great. I mean, he's talking to fucking Neil Morricone. Yeah. He says, look, that's great, but it's not a John Carpenter movie. I need you to write. And there are some stories that say that he played in Neil Morricone, the music from Escape from New York. So he's, he essentially hires one of the greatest most celebrated film composers in the history of cinema. To
1: do his own. To mm-hmm. do
2: a score. And then says, yeah, that's great, but I need you to do it like I would
1: do it. Yeah. And
2: that's how we get the theme to, like, that opening theme. Boom. The, the, the oh,
1: what is it? Dum-dum. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah.
2: That's how we get that theme. Yeah. Because he says, I, that's great, but I need you to do a John Carpenter score. It's, you I mean, know, you, <laughs> get the, you get flourishes. It reminds of, me of the back and forth
1: in the, the Charlie... Uh, Brown Christmas special. Remember when, like, what is it? Um, what's his face? Stroders playing the piano, and Lucy comes over. It has a sound like He's like, just like that's <laughs> it. You know, it's like you know, it's so bare bones. It's you know, it's yeah, like, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like this is what I want, no matter what. And then, yeah, but he, can, but he's also a musician. So it's like you're right. It's a further way he can he can get his head around. <laughs> ownership,
2: have authorship of it, play into that auteur aspect of it that we were talking about earlier.
1: And he meets Deborah Hill on this movie who goes on to be a collaborator with him. She, I think, is an assistant editor on this as well.
2: She's a script supervisor in production and then an assistant editor in in post-production. And then
1: they become an item and then she goes on to help him write Halloween.
2: She helps him write Halloween and produces Halloween and becomes his producer and writing partner uh, for The Fog and... Maybe it was an escape, escape from New York yeah. and then the f- how about
1: the TV something somebody to watch over me or the Elvis I don't
2: know about that, but definitely Halloween's two and three
1: I guess he's hired guns for those yeah the TV stuff because he did the Elvis and someone watch somebody watch over me because he didn't know Halloween didn't become a success yet because in here when this movie gets finally gets a success or gets praised people are saying mm-hmm. he's gonna maybe be one day on par with Don Siegel the director of yeah Dirty Harry and um uh, the original Invasion of the Body Snatchers, you know, so maybe that's the idea of them saying he'll be the best B director of all time doing those kind of movies. You know, yeah. he certainly knows what he's good at and he strives at. You know, I mean, I think in any other person's hands, this movie could have been very different. It could have been just the movie of the week that didn't go anywhere. You know, if you don't shoot the ice cream scene, you have a siege. with. Yeah. A, 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 well, I mean, a,
2: that's something like that is definitely a comes score. with youth. You know, the yeah. pushing the envelope is a very youthful sure thing. Yeah. And I'd, I could see him saying – I understand why he says like maybe I, I wouldn't – I probably wouldn't do it that way today. I probably wouldn't put that scene in the movie today. Because that's the mo- – that's why you remember
1: this movie. you know. I mean also the soundtrack to a lesser extent. But people who aren't into soundtracks who say, oh, that's good. I remember seeing this movie as a 7- or 8-year-old was
2: – When he did the anth- – he came out to the anthology album, which I mentioned earlier, which is like he took all the arrangements – with, a, with a band of music with his live band. And he recorded basically the live arrangements in a studio. And they released that as an album called the uh, Carpenter Anthology from 1970, whatever to 1990, whatever. Um, and then the art for that, there was, uh, for the shirts and things. And when you go on the tour, they had, there's little emblems for each theme for each movie. So like, uh, 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 In the Mouth of Madness is a book with like tentacles coming out from behind it and stuff. There's all these like little symbols. Um, the the symbol for Assault at Precinct 13 is an ice cream cone with target sight.
1: Oh, really? On it? Yeah. Just, and it's funny because I
2: have a tour shirt. I should worn it today. Where it's like John Carpenter anthology tour, and then it's each emblem around it, like like the numbers of a clock, kind oh, of in yeah, yeah, a yeah. circle. But the top one at twelve o'clock is the Assault and Breaching thirteen one. It's I always wear a t shirt with like a, a button down shirt over. And so all you ever see is just like the top half of your. All you ever yeah. see is and when I wear that shirt, all you see is <laughs> is an ice cream cone. <laughs> <laughs> with, a, with, a, with a sniper sight on a scope through. That's hilarious. <laughs> it's like that's not that. And people get confused. What you. is people that? Are like, why, are oh, a, why do you have an ice cream cone on your shirt? <laughs> uh,
1: and Tony Burton goes on. We covered him because he was in Rocky. He plays. He probably might be the biggest one to kind of come out of this if you take away Kim uh, Richards' Goes on to do, you know, uh, have her own fame and is now, yeah. Uh, Tony
2: Burton, classic. He he's Apollo's tr- a trainer in Rocky in the Rocky series. I think he, he eventually because I think he's eventually named Duke, but I don't think he's named Duke in the first movie. But he he's Apollo's trainer um, and then becomes Rocky's trainer in uh, he trains Rocky with Apollo in three. <sighs> And then becomes Rocky's trainer in four after Apollo dies. Spoiler alert. <laughs> <laughs> and then, of course, he's in The Shining.
1: Yeah. Yeah, he he, rent, he owns the rental place that Scatman gets the uh, rental stuff from. They become real assholes. <laughs> he's a, only Scatman could do. It's like when you burn toast. And he
2: just died recently, too. Yeah, he Not did. Scatman. <laughs>
1: <Burton>. <laughs> Scatman died in ninety six or so. Yeah, Tony Burton. Um And I think Honorable Mention, the remake, which I've never seen, but they say that that might be the last version in the credits of a rap song that... It's by KOS KRS One. That is about what the movie's about. Remember, like we talk about mm-hmm. the Ninja Turtles or nothing but trouble. Well, not, not nothing but trouble, but certainly the Ninja Turtles. And I feel like there's other examples we bring up in the Ninja Turtles. Uh, Adam's, Adam's family. family. Yeah, Adam's family.
2: Uh, there's one in Waxwork
1: Two. You know where they have uh, just Monster a, Squad. Yeah, you know, like a rap. Like you know, uh, and the Ninja Turtles one is phenomenal,
2: by
1: the way. <laughs> 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 you know, well, you get school. two.
2: You got the one for the first one, and then you got Ninja, ninja Rap, Nin- Ice Tea, ice ice, ice, ice ice Vanilla Ice. Uh, Vanilla
1: yeah, 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 yeah. Go ninja, go ninja, uh, I,
2: I saw the remake when it came out.
1: I was against it because I'm like, how do you remake this with I all these stars? I never think it was okay. That's what I've heard. People are like, yeah, it's a pretty good movie. I mean, they add a subplot of, like, I guess, police corruption in it or something. But I, wanna, it's like,
2: I I don't remember specifically, but I want to say that like, they're after... I want to say they're after the Napoleon Wilson character. Oh, for a reason. So it becomes a different... Movie motivation yeah that's yeah. my recollection i could be wrong it's yeah. been over 10 years so this this or comes 10 out years since i've seen it
1: this comes out doesn't really do well here but like we said it goes to europe britain it plays at con uh you know romero sees it at con because he's he's pushing martin at the time he says that like this blew everybody out of the water and then because of that whoever i forget her name she's at con she signs this movie to play in uh, edinburgh film festival in scotland it plays there and then this Gets huge reviews, ratings, goes on to Europe, and then, I guess within a year or so, comes back into the states, and then starts getting buzz. And then once he does Halloween, this gets kind of reevaluated, and people are like this is really fucking good, <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah,
2: well, I mean, Europe. Yeah, I mean, especially places like France, they're ahead of us. With they the were lot. well, they were just so enamored with. Well, they got the, the idea, Hollywood right? The Hollywood system. They, they, you know, the old Hollywood. Just like the British guys were with the blues music. Yeah. You know, like here in America, we didn't care about the blues anymore by the 60s rolled around. Yeah. But all the young British guys were like, the American blues is the greatest. And then there was this big research as the blues. I think like Europe. They
1: so they recognized it as a Western because think they, they, rec- they had a disassociation I think they appreciated
2: like the classic Hollywood style of filmmaking that he was going for. That were too and close then the re- to. And then the references to the Westerns and stuff mm-hmm. where – You know, I think the American audiences by then were moving on. Yeah, didn't know or didn't Didn't care. Didn't always appreciate. That's why everybody always has to go like Hendrix had to go to England to become famous to come back yeah Stray Cats had to go to England you always to hear become that you know you gotta, go, you
1: gotta go away and do something come back so that you're appreciated you know what yeah. I mean and that's like a, that's almost a mantra in life so uh yeah this was this was a huge huge one for me growing up scary you know this was up there like with Death Wish 3 like the freaking bad guys and that it's just De- you know, a
2: young Dion Baia Night death, deathly afraid of zombies yeah. and gangs and ga- so oh, this, this kind is, of game so in a way this is the perfect <laughs> Movie to scare the shit yeah <laughs> out of a young Dion. I'm <laughs> gonna have, so, <laughs>
1: uh, as long as I don't hear an ice cream <laughs> truck around the corner, I'm gonna be fine. You know, an, a, a, a driverless ice cream truck, uh, uh, I will shit my pants. What about the Clint Howard movie? He's uh, an ice cream man. No, or that episode of uh, is that Don Rickles? Who's the, uh, the Tales of the Crypt episode where it's like the. He's got a symbiotic twin attached yeah. to him. Is but that he,
2: but isn't he a? Is uh, that ice a ventriloquist?
1: Cream oh, maybe yeah. There's an ice cream man one that's real freaky too. That's there's a guy that's giving kids, but then he's talking. I forget. I haven't seen those in so many in how many years. Uh, and we we brought up yeah, I, the ice. What's his face? The same gun as the DL14 Blaster from from Star Wars. This thing, you know, double days great in this. Uh, it's a cla- It's just funny because when I watch it so far removed, I'm like, oh, it's just like it's. It's almost silly, you know, but it's just, it's yeah. done in such a way, it's, it, you know, transcends, it's not a B-movie, you know, it, it, it becomes this thing because of the soundtrack the performance is able to get, and I think it's all that freaking 235, that Panavision, you know, it looks fucking, it looks great, you know, you, I wonder yeah. back in the day, you know, if you were able to make that frame,
2: your frame composition look good, you're, you're gold, baby, you know, yeah, you know. Uh, also features Charles ciphers in a small part as uh, officer starker Charles yeah. cyphers plays uh he 's
1: the guy that 's that 's escorting
2: the prisoners,
1: yeah uh, that get shot in the back a lot it's I always feel bad for all those guys that get shot in the back outside they don 't go to see if they 're okay <laughs> <laughs> and then you're like <laughs> i 'm still here i I need help you know <laughs> they just shut the doors on you that that 's cipher yeah,
2: yeah, but he plays the sheriff uh nancy loomis 's dad in Halloween, and then he plays like the weather guy. In the fog, yeah. he was always hitting on Jamie <laughs> Barbo. <laughs> I know him from the fog. Well, I forgot that he was in a uh, Halloween.
1: So you're right; it's very incestuous, like you yeah. know, her her sister being in Halloween and all that kind of stuff. You know, it's, it's so funny. Uh, so yeah, that that's that's the assault on Precinct 13 for you from 1976. Uh, you know, the rest is history. Um, and we have a big announcement to make that we've been we've been um, oh yeah do we have
2: time for this
1: yeah yeah I know exactly put, everybody's got, we we gotta put our clothes back on <laughs> yeah you because know, we're getting ready for bed so um, summer's
2: coming up yeah
1: and this was our official kind of kick into the summer yeah was like a summer movie doing this is for us we always say we're summer seasonal and this was our summer <laughs> summer seasonal Edits, movie and it's
2: the summer leading up to our fifth anniversary
1: maybe fifth or sixth I don't remember uh, September 2014 so maybe that is the fifth mean the fifth year I,
2: don't know, I think so. Yeah. I think it's our fifth anniversary. Anyway, we decided uh, that uh, we're going to do something special all summer long. Yeah. So we're going to do... We're having a very... Saturday Night Movie Sleepovers, summer sequels, summer extravaganza. Yeah, it's a summer of sequels for so many <laughs> seasons,
1: <laughs> celebrities, sorcerers to see. And so. so we're going to be doing, all summer we're going to be doing sequels. Yeah, to, to some of your favorite movies. And we're not going to, we can't, if you, people start asking us, uh, you know, what you're going to do is going to be very easy. <laughs> you know, you'll, you'll you'll be able. We can't give any hints out because you know what it is, but it's going to be some
2: fabulous movies, and we're going to do we're gonna until be doing some of our favorite sequels. Or we're doing some of the most iconic sequels of all time. Yeah, your
1: favorite sequels,
2: uh, <laughs> second installments into some of the great franchise yeah. franchise you know time. It may or not just, even be
1: yeah it might even be the direct sequel to the movie it could be just an installment in the franchise or whatever it it's a se- technically a sequel it's still a, still you a know sequel. even a reboot or not so much a reboot but like you know, it's, <laughs> it's, it's you know you'll see it's gonna be some exciting and that's gonna lead us into the uh, to, to Labor Day <laughs> you know yeah, we're going all summer <laughs> yeah it's gonna so but don't worry it's gonna be good it's gonna, it's be, gonna be good and yeah, we're
2: gonna, gonna try to keep the uh, diversity that we always try to keep up yeah the, try not to spend, spend too much much time in yeah. one place for too long. Yeah, but uh, uh, it's going to be a lot of fun. Then next
1: week we're kicking in the door with a for s- a phenomenal <laughs> man. This is the sequel
2: of all sequels the to be sequel. do this movie since nineteen eighty two?
1: Yeah, so this will be an exciting one next week. So uh, you since know, it's day
2: one. Yeah, why don't we do this movie?
1: Yeah, it's going to be a big one. Be big, and the I kids. Yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. But, <laughs> you know, it's like it's going to be so big. It's gonna we, yeah,
1: we hold that in our back pocket. <laughs> It <laughs> is. We're, we're calling it out now. So, uh, yeah, hopefully you'll like it as much as we do because it's going to be fun. So, stick with us
2: all summer. Yeah, and keep going
1: afterward, too. And <laughs> yeah.
2: then all the way through
1: yeah. uh, It'll be the anniversary time. and beyond. Yeah, because we've already got some good. We've got some good things, and we're we're already thinking about what we're going to do around Halloween too. We do our, you know, we're weekly by then. You know, we're doing overtime. Yeah. Uh, but you can always find us, as we always say. You can find us on Facebook. We're on Instagram. We're on Twitter. Please like us, share some of your our comments. You can engage us and tweet us and let us know uh, thoughts, comments, concerns, questions. Uh, you can find us on there, too. You have the regular site, Saturday Night Movie Sleepovers, where you can find more about us, our projects, and uh, extras that go along with each posting. You can find us at cln- clnsmedia.com. You can find us there, clnsmedia. We do good things there with those good people. You can <laughs> find us over there, and when you know, we're partnered with them. Uh, Blake, what do you have going on?
2: At uh, score to death conversation with some of horror's greatest composers where I interviewed John Carpenter and we talked about this score amongst his many other scores. Uh, we also have score to death dot com where you can find the book books also available on Amazon and from other book retailers. You can listen to the back episodes of score to death, the podcast. And now I'm also doing a f- horror film music podcast called cuts from the crypt for the damn fine network dion what about you what do you got going on i got
1: a book that's out called blood in the streets it's available on paperback uh ebook and audiobook um on amazon barnes noble wherever you get your books if you like that this kind of gritty 70s cinema uh it's a gritty 70s cinematic cop movie uh in a book form so check it out takes place oddly enough in 1976 so very uh current uh that got got that going on and um we'd like to thank our sponsor this week too uh, thank you very much. And, uh, yeah, hang in there because in two weeks we're going to be kicking in the door, waving the 4-4. We're gonna, you're going to be loving it. It's going to be awesome. That's actually not a uh, – uh, we're not doing Magnum Force. <laughs> 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 that's not, that's not, I'm not saying that's a uh, – We're not you know, saying we're not doing, doing I'm not Force. saying I'm not doing <laughs> Magnum Force, but we're not doing Magnum Force next week. It's going to be a great one. So uh, we, we think you're going to like what we have in store. And keep up letting us know what you like and all that kind of thing and please like us tweet us like our Facebook page like our Instagram page and please like our Twitter page because we're trying to get our um, social media presence numbers up you know our, our, our friends because the, the numbers help so uh, please check that out we'll see you very soon later
2: later